Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, congratulations to pop star Demi Lovato. It appears that she is a she again. That's right. Um, Demi Lovato, who is a, a musician, I can't name any of her songs, but she's famous. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what songs she's famous for, but she's she's young. She's famous. She's very hip. She's very cool. She's big. She's part of that whole culture like uh, Ariana Grande and Miley Cyrus and all those people. Demi Lovato, she's big. She's big with the young folks. So anyway, uh, she goes on this podcast, uh, the Spout podcast, hosted by Tamara Dia. And Tamara Dia tells Demi Lovato that she doesn't, st- still doesn't quite understand the whole pronoun thing involving they and them. See, the pop star Demi Lovato has been using they and them pronouns since May of 2021, when she publicly came out as gender non-binary. Now, I always upset a lot of people because I understand what male is. I understand what female is. I understand, I believe that you can be transgender. I think uh, Caitlyn Jenner is a woman. I'll say she's a woman. You know, if you go through the whole surgical procedure and all the process and go from one gender to the other, I believe you can be transgender. I still can't quite wrap my head around non-binary. I'm not sure that I understand it. Whatever. I don't need to understand it. It's not for me. But if non-binary is a thing, if it's a state of being, a state of mind, a state of gender, a state of sexuality, why do we use the term they and them? And here's my issue with it, and I'm not trying to be close-minded. I'm not trying to be discriminatory in any way. I've uh, I've met people that consider themselves non-binary, and they seem like very nice people. But here's my issue, is that it's confusing. So if I, I say he, I know I'm talking about one person. If I say she, I know I'm talking about one person. But if I use the term they or them... That that applies to multiple people. How can you use the term they or them to apply to just a single person? But, but let's put that aside. So Demi Lovato, who a lot of people take seriously because she's famous, in May of 2021, she decides that she is now gender non-binary. Apparently, that's something you can just decide. Well, now she has decided... That she is a she again, that from it's been quite a road 
from May of 2021 when she updated her Instagram pronouns to August of 2022. It's been, what, 14 months, 15 months. And now she said that she's been feeling more feminine lately, which prompted her to start using the she and her pronouns in addition to they and them. Now, I'm not joking. This is what she said, or, or they or them said. You, na- you name it. You, you tell me. But here's my problem. So she's using she and her in addition to they and them. Now, I, I, it doesn't make a difference to me what Demi Lovato wants to be called, except here. A lot of people are influenced by Demi Lovato, a lot of young people especially. And we've seen the numbers of young people that now view themselves as gender non-binary. It's the highest rate of gender non-binary people ever. So if Demi Lovato can wake up one morning and decide that she's a woman and a she, and then the next day decide that she's non-binary and a they or a them, doesn't that, in my view, totally upend what gender is supposed to be about? I don't think gender should be like changing your voter registration status, go from Democrat to Republican or go from, you know, it should be something that's part of your nature. I have a lot of sympathy for people that feel like they're a woman trapped in a man's body or vice versa. I know that uh, a lot of suicide attempts in the transgender community are very common And I think that's just awful. There's a lot of discrimination that people who are transgender have to deal with. I understand all that. My fear is that the act of calling yourself non-binary, especially now that Demi Lovato has proven that this is just temporary, potentially, is making gender identification totally meaningless. What does gender count for if you can just... Change it back and forth. Uh, I mean, this has gotten a lot of coverage in recent years because of sports, namely collegiate and high school athletics. And it's also gotten a lot of coverage because of bathrooms. Now, but beyond that, I think gender roles should count for something. I think if you want to be non-binary, that's a pretty big decision. And I don't think that you should be setting an example for the public and for your fans that you can go back and forth between all this. Does that make any sense to you? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Now, I can't stress enough how open-minded I am on this issue. Uh, Whenever we've done these subjects, we've always had a lot of transgender callers. We've had non-binary callers. But to me, gender is something you're born with. It's not a state of mind that you can change like you change your clothes. This is Demi Lovato on the uh, Shout podcast with Tamara Dia. And uh, this is her take on why she's going from being a they to being a her. You've mentioned before that you are very fluid and you're non-binary and you go by the pronouns they, them. Um, For someone like me, I'm still learning what all of that means, and I want to be very respectful of the pronouns that people would like to be referred by. But admittedly, the they, them, I still don't quite understand. Can you please explain it to me? 
Yeah, so they, them is, um, I've, I've actually adopted the pronouns of she, her again. So for me, I'm such a fluid person that I don't really, I don't find that I am, I felt like, especially last year, my energy was balanced and my masculine and feminine energy. So that when I was faced with the choice of walking into a bathroom and it said women and men, I didn't feel like there was a bathroom for me because I didn't feel necessarily like a woman. I didn't feel like a man. Um, I just felt like a human. And that's what they, them is, is about for me. It's just about like feeling human at your core. Recently I've been feeling more feminine. And so I've adopted she, her again, but I think what's important is like, nobody's perfect. Everyone messes up pronouns at some point. And especially when people are learning, it's just all about respect. I, I am dumbfounded. I am dumbfounded. Forget about these pronouns. I can't keep up with these pronouns. Br- bring in the amateur nouns. Maybe I can keep up with those nouns. This is crazy. This is crazy. Did you hear what she just said? She was feeling balanced, both masculine and feminine. And when she would see a, a ladies' room and a men's room, she felt like there was not a bathroom for her. So what did she do? What did, did she wait until there was a non-binary room that she could go to? Or did she hold it in until she got home? And I don't mean to be funny, and I'm not trying to be insulting to Demi Lovato or anybody else that changes gender the way I change my mind about Mexican versus Chinese food. This is crazy. I mean, at some point, we have to just admit that the amount of time, energy, and effort that we're, dis- that we're spending discussing people's pronouns is just insane. This is crazy. I, I-, I think I-, I don't know what society's going to look like 40 years from now. Maybe we'll all be non-binary by then. And maybe people will be able to play back the tape of what I'm saying now and saying, oh, listen to that guy. He was so small minded. He was so ignorant. He didn't understand that everybody's gender is fluid. I don't think so. I think if you look at the entirety of human civilization, we've had heterosexuality. We've had homosexuality. We've had um, men. We've had women. I don't think we've ever had a civilization in the history of the world that has spent the amount of time talking about pronouns that we do. Pronouns. It was no bathroom for me. Now, 800-848-9222. She talked about her evolving approach to both gender and sexuality several times. She previously came out as pansexual which was not something that I even knew existed until recently. During an episode of Joe Rogan's podcast in March of 2021, she said, I'm so fluid now, and part of the reason why I am so fluid is because I like super, I was like super closeted off. You know, by the way, is there a gender or a gender identification which doesn't have people randomly insert the word like in the middle of sentences, because that's the sexuality or the gender for me. I want to sign up for the unlikable sexuality. So pansexual, Rogan asked Demi Lovato whether she liked women or men. She replied, yeah, anything really. Okay, I could deal with that. That's the definition of a pansexual. I could deal with that. I can't deal with, needing to check your decoder ring 
to see what pronoun to call somebody. It's nuts. 800-848-9222. Lovato also said she feels, quote, too queer to be romantic or sexual with a cisgender man. Now, for those of you that have lost track of what's what here, I know we're talking about a lot of things. And, I, and, and again, I know this sounds like I'm being cynical and I'm being uh, insulting. I'm not trying to be any of those things. I, I'm trying to be open-minded but realize that we cannot do this. You can't just make it okay for people to change their gender every day. I don't think you can. So anyway, uh, cisgender is somebody that is male and was born male and identifies as a male. Okay. Shortly after calling off her two-month engagement to actor Max Eric, this past year I was engaged to a man, and when it didn't work, I was like, again with the like, this is a huge sign. I thought I was going to spend my life with someone. Now that I wasn't going to, I felt this sense of relief that I could live my truth. Now, I don't want to get into the psychology of pop stars or women or non-binary people because I'm certainly not an expert in any of those three things. I'll just say this. What it looks to me is what happened here is that Demi Lovato was in a relationship with a man and she was also attracted to women at various times. And this relationship soured. And like a lot of us do, when our relationships with someone we care about ends, she went looking for answers as to why this relationship didn't work out. And it looks to me as if she decided in the moment that she was non-binary when I don't even know that non-binary is really a thing, honestly. And again, if if anybody fits in that category, Pat, the Saturday Night Live character, or uh, Taylor from the show Billions, I apologize, but it it just, I don't get it. I don't get it. And maybe it's my own ignorance. Maybe it's my own closed-mindedness. I think I'm a pretty open-minded guy. I think the danger here, and then I'll shut up and let you guys speak, I think the danger here is that Demi Lovato's audience, which is young, is now going to think it's fine to change gender whenever they want. And maybe it is. But I think the ramifications of that for schooling, like whether you go to an all-male school or an all-boys school, for for anything else in society, I, I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that's healthy for an individual. I don't think it's healthy for society. And again, I'm a pretty liberal guy. Uh, I try. I, I don't care what people do. Sleep with who you want to sleep with. Call yourself whatever pronoun you want to call yourself. Just once you pick a gender, stick with it. Stick with it for more than a year and a half. That's all I'm asking. 800-848-9222. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, Demi Lovato is extremely confused in all of her life. You remember, she almost OD'd, or she did OD. She almost died. Went to rehab, got out of rehab, and said, when, you know, when, after rehab, you're supposed to stay sober. I mean, she has a problem. And she goes, well, I can have a glass of wine or smoke some weed here and there. That's no big deal. And then with the pronoun change, I feel like she just does things to get attention. And ah. she should really focus on her music. She's not a bad What singer. songs has she had? I know Substance Sa- is one. Um, Skyscraper was a big one. Cool for the Summer was a big one a couple of years ago. Um, she's done a couple of songs that have been pretty, that have been big hits. 
But I feel like she does things now just to get attention. A year ago, she was complaining that she had to walk by uh, a stack of cookies in a yogurt shop that said guilt-free and that she shouldn't have to see that and feel guilty what? for eating cookies. No, she didn't. No, she didn't yeah, she that. did. Oh, my. Oh, she absolutely so, did. You know, I... I blasted the company on, on social media oh for, for this thing. And the other thing about pronouns, which I don't understand, if I decided, Frank, if you decided you want to be they and them, the only time I would ever refer to you using pronouns is if I was talking about you to someone else. I'm not going to say they to you. I'm going to call you Frank well, right. or that, say you. That, that's why I mean, I can call you. So I can call you it. it. You know, is is um is Frank taking off for for Labor Day? I don't know. They haven't told me. Do you see how ridiculous it right. sounds? It's no just, one I, else I hate gonna, everything about the person it. who says I want to be they and them. They're never going to hear that. By the way, um, I did follow Demi Lovato last year because she's into alien or she or they or that. I don't know. Whatever whatever pronoun she's using at this moment. That person is into aliens and everything. And she actually went so far as to say to TMZ in October that we need to stop calling extraterrestrials aliens because that is a derogatory term. I think we have to stop calling them aliens because aliens is a derogatory term for anything. Do you get the sense that there are a lot of extraterrestrials offended by being called aliens. What do they want to be called? Undocumented species? Well, what should we call the, the extraterrestrials? I, I guess we have to call them that, extraterrestrials. <sighs> I'm not spending the whole show on this. I'm warning you, so get all your, your gender comments out of the way now. Eddie is in Phoenix, Arizona. He's been patiently holding. I think it's a he. It might be a they. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. This whole thing is so crazy. I don't know why you're so apologetic about it. You seem to be just like you can't wrap your head around it, so just say so straight out. It's crazy. It makes no sense, and these people are nuts. I don't even understand how people – like it became a thing like you could offend these type of people. They're pe- regular people who made a choice. You could af- you could offend someone who decided to make a choice. They weren't born different. They didn't. There's nothing inherently different about them. And if they're going to say, "Yeah, I was born to the wrong body," that makes no sense. Whichever way you shape it, it just makes no sense. And if someone's got feelings, you got to deal with the feelings. That doesn't change who you are and doesn't turn you into a vulnerable community, so called. Thank you, Eddie. 800-848-9222. David is in Pennsylvania. Hello, David. Hi, Frank. You know, back in the day, uh, people used to know what a man and woman is. Now you need a, an app, a gender app to calculate your gender, it seems. You know, I, I personally just think this is promoted by the woke perpetrators that want to just create confusion among young people. It's similar to the woke culture or the, the wokeness of um, critical race theory where it's, you know, basically teaching anti-Martin Luther King teachings to create division, divisiveness. Yeah, thanks, David. I I don't think it's similar to critical race theory, right? So critical race theory, as I understand it, and I don't pretend to be an expert on that at all, uh, I mean, they're both, I guess you're right, in that they're they're both based in extreme political correctness. I guess you're right in that respect. But critical race theory is as I understand it, a view of history and a view of teaching history 
that says that Westerners and especially white Westerners are to blame for a lot of the problems that history uh, th- that history has seen. Now, you could agree with that. You could disagree with it. It's a theory. But to be able to publicly change your gender whenever you want without going through any medical procedure or just, just by way of identifying yourself and use of these pronouns, to me, it's absurd. David is in either Los Angeles or Louisiana. Hello, David. <laughs> it's Los Angeles. And, Frank, I'm so happy you're doing this topic. It makes me nuts. And for all your listeners who might not realize it, it's as bad as you say. I'm reading an article today about Ezra Miller, and it's like, Ezra Miller, they are in trouble. They, them. It's like, is, it, is Ezra Miller the name of a rock group or a person? So I can't believe mainstream journalism is picking up on this. It is an intent to break down society. Um, the, the, the pressure, there's 90 different genders, and the pressure on mm. kids to be anything but heterosexual it's and and then everything you say frank you're going to be accused of triggering it's violence and you know what if if you're at work and your coworker didn't study up and call you by your right pronoun out of the 80 pronouns literally you know lawsuit time I know, I know I, you watch on TikTok. Oh, I quit my job today because my boss wouldn't recognize my gender. He called me she. And so I like, quit your job over it. It's 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 like the craziest thing. And I, I the Disney executive, a Disney executive said, anytime we could put the new genders and, you know, about being gay in the storyline we're going to my I've got two kids. One's gay and one's trisexual. I mean, now it's trisexual. So it's complete confusion. It's brainwashing and and, and twisting these kids' minds. And you can say, uh, the final thing I'll say is that the transgenders that have a high suicide rate is not because society's mean to them. It's because they've got mental illness problems, which makes them be transgender. You know, to to say that I'm a man and now I'm going to be a woman, well, you've got emotional problems. You know what I'm saying? Well, David, David, uh, thank you. I can understand. And maybe other people can. I can understand that if you have had a burning desire to be some gender other than the one you are and you're going to go through surgery and hormone therapy, I can understand that, right? And I know a lot of people that have made that transition and are very happy, right? What I can't understand is Monday I'm a woman, Tuesday I'm non-binary. To me, that is just crazy. I mean, to me, I think to Matt Blaze's point, maybe that's the best example that maybe that's the best analysis that I've heard. I think it might be just a pop star looking for attention. That might be what we're dealing with here, uh, or it might be somebody with broader problems. You know, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of everything that Matt said there. That she had had substance abuse issues and she continues to use drugs and alcohol. I didn't know that, uh, but uh, maybe that's an indication of. More going on there. We'll continue with your calls in a moment, and uh, we'll get into some other issues. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Put my love out on the line Never said yes to the right guy Never had trouble getting what I want But when it comes to you, I'm never good enough 
So this is actually Heart Attack by Demi Lovato. See, this is pretty catchy. I can understand why she's popular. I, I can't understand why we all spend so much time caring about her view of what pronouns to use. But it's a good song. A very good song, I must say. All right. Um, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. But I have still been trying to catch you up on all the motion pictures that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. And so about a week ago, I saw a film called The Edge of 17. I saw this right before I went away. Uh, This is about uh, six years old, this film. It was on Netflix. And you know what inspired me to see this? It was July 31st. I guess it was 12 days ago. It was July 31st. And a big war- it was in my queue from Netflix, my, uh, my list. That's the streaming selections, not the DVDs. I still got the DVDs um, and mailed to my house. But in addition to the DVDs, you have these streaming selections in your list. So it said, disappearing from Netflix on August 1st. I said, oh, well, I got to watch this before it disappeared. Now, I, I, for the life of me, I don't know what made me want to put this in my queue to begin with, or my uh, list to begin with, not not anything against the film, but I don't know what it was. It wasn't really nominated for any major awards. might have been because Woody Harrelson is in it, and I like Woody Harrelson. The film's called The Edge of Seventeen, and it was a, it's a kind of a typical coming-of-age comedy drama film. The film stars Haley Steinfeld, uh, Woody Harrelson, Kira Sedgwick. Essentially, it's about a young woman. 17-year-old, high school junior, living in the suburbs of Portland, and she has a tough relationship with her brother. She's got a tough relationship with her mom, and the only person she really felt close to was her father, who died when she was young. And it deals with her having boy problems, school problems, getting into an argument with her friend. It's pretty standard coming-of-age stuff. Uh, I liked it. It was a very strong performance by by Haley Steinfeld and uh, Woody Harrelson is great in just everything, as far as I'm concerned, uh, from Cheers to the Thin Red Line and everything in between. But um, I didn't get the hoopla that people made over it. If you look at the review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 94 percent approval rating. Ninety-four percent. I mean, geez. So uh, the some of the critics says this is more than just another coming-of-age dramedy. I didn't think it was. I think it was pretty standard. So I don't know how you can see it now that it's off Netflix, but eh, I, I think you could go the rest of your life without seeing it, and your life would be pretty close to as it is now. If you're a young person or you have a young person in your life that would enjoy a coming-of-age film... I think it strikes the perfect balance between comedy and drama. And really the thing that makes the film for me is the performances. Story I found pretty predictable. It's another one of these things within within 15 minutes I could have told you exactly how that was going to end. Okay, they're going to do that, they're going to do that, and then uh, that's what's going to happen at the end. You, it's, I found it pretty predictable. But enjoyable, though, for, for a 90-minute film. So uh, the film is called uh, The Edge of Seventeen. Again, it's six years old now. If you were interested in seeing this, you probably... Uh, already seen it. She was nominated, uh, Haley Steinfeld at the time, for a whole bunch of awards. Uh, Critics' Choice Award for Best Actress in a Comedy, Best Youth Performer. And you can see why she's very good in it. But uh, the film is is fine. It's fine. That's the best description I can give to it. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. 
888-900-2222. Let me begin with Gracie in Rockland County. Hello, Gracie. Oh, hello, Frank. Listen, I'm going to be redundant, but uh, we have to just drop the pronouns. And uh, if I'm going to give something to you or ask somebody, I'll say, please give this to Frank. How is Frank doing today? Uh, and even myself, I, are we allowed to use the pronoun I, or, or are we supposed to talk about ourselves in the third person? You know, that's a good I mean, point, Gracie. When I was growing up, I was always taught that it was pretty rude to use a pronoun uh, to refer to someone and, and that you should use their name. That's a good point. When did that change? Well, who, who knows, but could I say something about the movies? Last week I I was with in the library. We watched a movie called um, uh, Licorice Pizza, and it got, I don't know, somebody said, like, I don't know how many tomatoes, eight tomatoes or something, you know what I mean, when they rated it? Sure. But we but we were mostly old people watching this. Uh, it was the lousiest movie I ever saw. Oh, really? Saw. See, I still haven't and, seen it, but it got good reviews. You didn't like it. They, no, and I'm telling you, we were 39 people in the library. Two walked out. The rest of us just stayed and watched it. But, boy, did we have a, a little discussion afterward. We, could, uh, we figured maybe it was our age. But uh, it, may, it was just ridiculous. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I do want to check it out. Well, watch it. Uh, it uh, one um, a protagonist was 25, and not that they had a sexual relation with the star that was going on 16. He was a boy. So right there, uh, I thought that was – it took place like 74, something like that. But it was uh, – you know, that that already, you know, turned me off. Right. That I, I didn't like that. I will, but it was uh, just the dumbest movie. I'd love to hear your opinion. I will check it out so, for, for the audience's make, sake, Gracie. Make sure Frank watches it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Gracie. Have a good night. Bye. Take care. 800-848-9222. She didn't like it. Or Gracie didn't like it. Didn't like licorice pizza. Did you see that, Matt Blaze, licorice pizza? Kenneth, did you see it? Nobody saw it here. Okay. Uh, I want to see it. I, I, I heard... I heard mixed reviews. I heard mixed reviews, but it got it got so much acclaim. I feel like I owe it to myself and to the audience to see. And I do like pizza and I like licorice. So I figured maybe this is a film that I would enjoy more than others. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Hi. Good morning. Interesting morning. topic. Interesting topic. But I want Thank to you. say Thank you. that I feel very strongly that I'm uh, very open-minded Nevertheless, let me start off with a quick analogy. If you put a frog into hot, into regular water and make it very hot immediately, it will jump out and live. Right. If, if you, you slowly boil the right. If you slowly boil the yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, so I'm saying the following: thirty-five years ago, this program today, which I understand, it perfectly makes sense. You should have this program on because this is what's going on these days. Any any liberal listening to this program, not conservative, liberal. Where am I? 35 years ago. This pro- uh, what? Hey, they. And what are we talking about? Demi Lovato, who I didn't need to hear, which it's good that I heard from the gentleman, Jonathan, whoever it was, that works uh, there by you. That, yes, Jonathan. You know, she is in rehab, she's on drugs, and now she's saying she can have a glass of wine. What is she t- saying to all the people listening to her that even if you're in rehab and you came out of it, 
you can have a glass of wine. So we're discussing what what, what a what an, uh, a confused individual, and he, she, they. It's so far gone. There's no limit to wokeism. So instead of worrying what's happening to America, what's happening to this country. If we don't win, if the Republicans, we am saying the Republicans don't win the House and then hopefully the House and hopefully the Senate and then hopefully the presidency, hopefully Trump, it's over. America's finished. Well, we're going to go to North Korea to have some freedom. It's, it's <laughs> insane where we're going. So, uh, and I am open-minded. I know you, you may think I'm arrogant. I'm no, no I, I don't think you're arrogant, Charles. It's just I don't think if you're looking for freedom that North Korea is the place to go. I mean, I get the point that you're making. It's just funny. 800-848-9222. Ed is in Westchester. Hello, Ed. How are you, Frank? I'm great. Thank you. Good, good, good. I wanted to shed some light. I just happened to be tuning in, and I happened to realize that I watched the same movie you were speaking about, The Edge of Seventeen. Okay, well, before I, a, I want to uh, let you say your piece, Ed, whatever it is, but two things. One, um, it, don't give any spoilers away for people that haven't seen the picture. And two, um, uh, did, I'm curious, did you watch it because it was leaving Netflix and it flashed that warning up there? No, I watched it because one of my 16-year-old daughters talked me into watching gotcha. it. Gotcha. Okay. Her. Got it. So I, I, I sat there with uh, with the target audience, if you will. Got I was it. not the target audience. She was, and I thought it was an excellent, excellent film. I thought that Haley Steinfeld should have won and should have definitely won an award. I thought Woody Harrelson did a phenomenal job, and it just tugged at your heartstrings. It was, it was done so well. And, and and it just showed, it was a coming-of-age movie. It showed the struggles. Uh, and there were a lot of struggles that, they, that the main character had. And I just thought it was it was great. It was just a great, great film. And I encourage anyone that can uh, watch it to uh, to check it out. Yeah, I, I, Ed, I agree with you that on, uh, on her performance and on Woody Harrelson's performance. I enjoyed it. I don't think I had the same sort of enthusiasm for it that you did. But I have nothing against it. I thought it was good. I thought it was well-made. I thought it was a well-done film. But, I, again... To me, if you if a film like Palm Springs, if you don't see Palm Springs, your life is worse off. The Godfather. If you don't see The Godfather, your life is worse off. Right. Um, But if you don't see The Edge of 17, eh, your life is going to be just as good or bad as it was prior to the act of not seeing it. 800-848-9222. James is in New Jersey. Hello, James. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. I like you. I like your show. So Thanks. interesting topic. I figured I'd call in with a perspective that you don't that you don't hear a lot. Great. So I'm 37 years old. All my girlfriends have been uh, women, you know, born women. But I currently have a girlfriend that's trans. You'd never know that she was trans. Some of my family knows who's more open minded, but those I know wouldn't understand it or accept it. She comes over for parties and get-togethers, and no one has any idea. We get compliments all the time. Oh, what a beautiful couple you are, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I called up is because when we talk about you know the possibility of adopting kids one day or this or that, she's very on board with me where she doesn't want her kids being educated by teachers. She And I refer to her as she. I'm very much a live-and-let-live kind of person. You see it one way. If someone you know thinks, oh, you know what, his girlfriend's not a girl, it's a man, keep your opinion to yourself. But I respect your opinion nonetheless. This is the United States. We're allowed to have our own opinion. But she, she can't stand that stuff. You know, oh, I'm this, or what's your pronoun? That stuff makes her sick. You know, in addition, she's very pro-police. 
Um, she doesn't shove her opinion down other people's throat. You know, um, she sees herself. She said, you know what, from the time I was two, this is how I saw it. Sure. And I, I respect can... that. And I, I, I would consider her a woman as well. A couple of quick questions. One, yeah. um, do, when you when you first met her, did you yeah. know that she was transgender or did you think she was a cisgender woman? No. So I, I, we first started messaging on a, a dating site. It was a typically straight dating site. She was very pretty. Um, you know, she told me that she was transgender and I wanted to go on a date with her. And we did. And, and she's one of the most empathetic, compassionate people I ever met. Well, yeah, so, that, like that, I said, that's great. And then, too, do, is yeah. she is she post-op transgender? Uh, no, she she chooses to keep that part of her the way she is. Um, I Like I said, I mean, for me, I, I'm disclosing this not because I have to, but for sure. me, my preference, I, I'm not attracted to men. So whatever activities that men who are attracted to men like to do, that's not for me. Um, but like I said, couples like us, people like different stuff, and that's that's their business. Um, Absolutely. But for her, that's, that's the way she chooses to be. Now, if there was, for example, a family that didn't want their kids over our house, as long as they don't shove it down our throat. Right. Oh, that's how I'm, I am, too, know, This is James. the United States. Uh, absolutely. That, know, that's like, how I am, too. But now yeah. th- there are – and I don't want to be too graphic here, James, but there, there are going to be – ask me anything you want. Well, <laughs> but there are going to be some folks that say, you know, if you're intimate – with a woman who still has male genitalia, yeah. that it's it's yeah. really not like you're being intimate with a woman. It's more like you're being intimate with a man. What what do you say to and, that? And, and and here's the way I look at it: they are entitled to their opinion. Mm-hmm. I can no more say my opinion is more valid than theirs. Where I draw the line with anything with religion, don't try to shove it. Sure, down my throat. agreed, agreed. You and know? then and, let- and it's funny about the United States. When, when this country was formed, and you know this, and our, a lot of our listeners know, it was because the Puritans came here and they wanted to live how they wanted to live. You know, so they traveled across the ocean to live the way they want. Well, which you I'm know? all and, for. And but, James, yeah. what do you think about the story that we began the show with, which uh, with Demi Lovato just switching uh, seemingly on a whim from being non-binary to being female again. Do you think that you should be able to just declare for the world, especially a public figure, that I'm now a woman again? And and, and this is exactly why I called. And I know my girlfriend and I would agree with this because we talk politics. It, it That kind of offends her because – she knew or felt this way, whether you agree or disagree, since she was could, her earliest memory. So something like that for her kind of cheapens her experience. Right, right. That, know, that's my now, view. Now, exactly, and, James. You know, and it's like, listen, she, she was born in Colombia. She came here. Her, pa- her family supports her, but her family didn't know she was coming here to transition. She came here at like 19 or 20 with nothing, knew no one to, to New York City. So, you know, whether you agree or disagree, the girl is scrappy. You know, she she had to overcome a lot of stuff to follow what she felt. And I just called to give perspective because you'll never hear a perspective like this on on media. No, that's true. It doesn't fit with the narrative. And that that frustrates me because there are a lot of people like her. You know, Caitlyn Jenner is a good example. Now, she transitioned much later in life. Like I said, no one would know my girlfriend was transgender unless she disclosed it. Caitlyn Jenner, not so much. But 
they the liberals hate Caitlyn Jenner. They hate her. Yeah, and they, they can't stand her. Uh, and James, thank you, and best of luck to you and your girlfriend. And uh, I appreciate the perspective. Yeah, I hope you call I, again. I hope our, I hope I offered your listeners a perspective that they don't get to hear that much. Uh, that no, much. no question about it. And I really don't think this should be a political issue. Uh, this should be one an issue of language, in terms of the blending of singular pronouns with multiple pronouns. And two, uh, it's an issue of, you know, not sending a message to younger folks that you're able to be whatever gender you want to be. See, the story that James said about his girlfriend, that's what I view as a transgender person. You felt like you're a woman trapped in a man's body. You're bursting at the seams to transition. I get that. I totally get that. I think Monday, eh, I'm a they. Tuesday, I'm a she. Thursday, maybe I'll be a he. That, I think, gets a little bizarre, to be honest. But the world doesn't have to live by my standards. My issue is, for better or worse, Demi Lovato influences a lot of people. And I don't think that this is a healthy message for people to be embracing. And I don't think it's a great thing for society to think that people could just change genders on a whim and go back and forth. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. singing Your Love. If you ever want to know what kind of music we play on this show, who the artists are, what the name of the song is, you can uh, go to uh, our Facebook group. Uh, just search uh, just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. So I have known Dominic Carter for many years. Dominic Carter is, of course, the host of the very popular, highly rated, number one in New York, a radio show on WABC from midnight to 1 a.m. every morning. He's also a veteran political reporter. I met Dominic, I guess, about 23 years ago. Uh, he was kind enough to have me on his show on New York One, and, and uh, we, then when he, we were both at different media outlets, we always stayed in touch. We were always pretty good friends, but I said, I tell you, since working here together... Our relationship has reached a whole new level of closeness where we, we talk. I, he might be my closest friend at the station as, other than Curtis. And he, certainly he's the one that I speak to the most, mainly because we spend an hour together each night just kind of talking. And uh, I've learned a lot from him. Gifted broadcaster. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, a guy that knows more about. I used to think that I knew a lot about New York politics. After listening to Dominic, I realized I know nothing. Guy's brilliant. 
So anyway, as well as I know Dominic, and as well as I've gotten to know him over the past year and a half, I had no idea about something about him. About three days ago, I see that he posts on Facebook what he's doing on the show that night. And I and it says, and if you want to buy Dominic's book, No Mama's Boy, which I have read. It's a very moving story. And Dominic was kind enough to sign a copy for me. Or get the Dominic Carter bobblehead doll. Then go to DominicCarterOnline.com. I said, what? Wait a minute. Wait, is that a... Is that a joke? Is that a misprint? So I have a I'm a bobblehead guy. Most of my bobblehead collection is presidents, but I have people that aren't presidents as well. I've got Vladimir Putin, I've got Vito Corleone, I've got a couple of baseball players, Pete Alonso, you know, the big Met victory yesterday by the way. They're as hot as can be. We'll talk about more about that in a few minutes, but I I said I got to get this. So I run to Dominic Carter's website, DominicCarterOnline.com, and I order one of these bobblehead dolls. So the first thing I say to Dominic when I get in that night, I said, Dominic, I, I didn't know that you had these bobblehead dolls. He, I, he, I said, are these new? Did you just launch these? He says, no, I, I had them for a while. And then I said, did you have these when you were at New York One? He says, no, maybe five or six years after New York One I had it. And I said, oh, I think this is great. I said, I collect bobblehead dolls. I said, I bought one. I just got one. He says, no, why'd you buy one for? I would have given you one. I said, nope, I'm happy to contribute. And it's $17.95, and I think you have to pay another $5 for shipping or something like that. I'm, I said, best bargain I've gotten all day. So Dominic laughs, and we both move on with our lives. So then yesterday comes around, and I'm recording some stuff for my uh, podcast in the neighboring studio. And then I walk into the studio that Dominic and I hang out in before our respective shows. And I see, waiting in my work area, place where I usually sit, is a Dominic Carter bobblehead doll. Bobblehead doll. I know people don't like me using the term bobblehead doll. Bobblehead doll. Let the church say amen. So Dominic gave me one of these bobblehead dolls and a $20 bill to refund my purchase of the bobblehead doll, which was very nice. I was happy to buy my own. But these dolls are great. First of all, he gave me a box that is as beat up as can be. This box looks like it was in a boxing match. In fact, I'm going to I'm gonna share this on my Instagram page. You, you could see it at uh, – uh, I'm going to share it at Morano Vision on Instagram. I'll share it in a second. It says, the front of it says, believe on the top, and then it says, believe on the bottom, Dominic Carter. Then the side says, both sides, always believe and achieve, the world is yours. And then also on that same side, it says, greatness is you. Then if you turn to the back, it doesn't just have verbiage like either side does. It says, Dominic says, in case you had any wonder about who was saying it, it says, <laughs> Dominic says, colon, success is possible. You can do anything. Overcome adversity. This is a limited collectible edition. And I love this message. And I guess it's geared mainly towards young people, but this is an important message for everybody. 
It says you are very smart. Do good in school. Believe in yourself. Stay positive. Stay away from drugs. I thought that was great. I was really inspired at 11.30 p.m. Or when, I, when I saw that. I thought this was great. Wow. The box is really beat up, though. See, I'm thinking here's what I'm going to do. Because I want to display the bobblehead doll in my office where I keep most of the rest of the bobblehead dolls. But I, I think this box is so inspirational that I, I want one in the box as well. And I don't really want to save this box because this particular box is beat up. Um, I'm not sure what it says about me that Dominic chose to give me such a, a beat up box. But he did make a point of saying he did make a point of saying that the um, the doll is in better shape than the uh, than the bobblehead doll is. So uh, it was very nice of Dominic to give me that. And uh, if you want one of your own, you could go to Dominic Carter online dot com. So. Uh, Matt Blaze, you said when I was showing off my uh, bobblehead doll yesterday that you did not know um, that you did not know that uh, Dominic had a bobblehead. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, this now is I want one. A new a- aspect yeah, of his personality. I had no idea. Yeah. And now I want one. Yeah, so do I. I mean, seeing yours. I may get another one. So you didn't buy yours yet? Not yet. Yeah, I think everybody should buy one. Uh, DominicCarterOnline.com if you want one. I think this is cool. All right, so I just posted on my uh, Instagram at MoranoVision. You could see the uh, the doll and uh, <laughs> the very inspiring verbiage uh, on the sides of the box. 800 Eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment, I, I'm going to buy another one because I feel bad that he gave it to me for free. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mark's in Garden City. Hello, Mark. How are you, Frank? Great. How are you? I'm good, Frank. Um, I heard you ask a caller a little while ago uh, if their partner was post-op transgender, and my understanding is that if someone gets that surgery, the sex change surgery, that's a transsexual. And the transgender people, at least to my understanding, is somebody who has their original equipment and keeps it, but wants to be called and dress and act like they're the opposite sex. Well, so I, you you don't even hear uh, hardly uh, about transsexuals anymore. But that's the person who actually has the surgery to change their, you know, their uh, original equipment. Yeah, Mark, uh, you are better informed on this subject than me. Uh, what you say sounds like it, it makes sense. I, I don't know, so I'll defer. I'll defer to you on that one. Neil's on Staten Island. Hello. Yeah, it's Frank. Uh, to keep up with revisionist history, why don't you put that bobblehead doll between Jefferson and Madison? That, <laughs> <laughs> that would be something, Frank. Anyway, I want to talk about Debbie Lovato. I think she's a nut job. I mean, she doesn't know what bathroom to use. I'll make it very simple, Frank. If she feels like she's going to pee standing up, go in the men's room. If she feels like she's going to pee sitting down, go in the ladies' room. Case out, Frank. Yeah, fair enough. Thank you, Neil. Uh, Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hey there, Frank. How are you? Great. Uh, this is a very interesting topic that you brought up because um, I'm a woman. I consider myself a woman, but I was always attracted to gay men which is very bizarre. And I actually dated them. You know, uh, I went out with them uh, to eat and go to plays and do things, but never had sex with them. Well, then they wouldn't be that gay. That would hurt their homosexual bona fides if they were busy having sex with you. 
Carol. Must have been uh, an interesting adventure. All right. Uh, out of time there, Carol. Thank you. Uh, coming up in just a moment, we'll talk a little bit about Iran, John Bolton, Taiwan. We'll do some alien talk. Until then, keep asking questions. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Months, years following September 11th, we heard a word, maybe it's a two-word phrase, pretty often. And it was a word and a concept that I, I, I was familiar with after, uh, before September 11th, but I didn't know this was what it was called. I know, I mean, it's difficult to put yourself in a pre-September 11th mentality, but that's where I was. The word is blowback. Are you familiar with the term blowback? Well, blowback essentially means, and this was said by a lot of folks on the right, on the left, in between, essentially as it relates to September 11th and the terrorist attacks on September 11th, the term meant that because the United States did X, then September 11th and the terrorist attacks on September 11th were the result. That's the blowback to the United States. And uh, I remember Ron Paul made this a big issue in his 2008 presidential campaign and Rudy Giuliani uh, publicly excoriated him. But I'll be honest, I think Ron Paul was right. And that in no way excuses the behavior of al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri, who just got killed, but it does offer a little bit of an explanation as to maybe how we can avoid terrorist attacks like this in the future. Basically, the theory goes that because the United States was doing things like having troops in the Holy Land and because the United States was uh, supporting Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because it was contributing to the deaths of Muslim children with sanctions on countries like Iraq, and because the United States was doing all sorts of other things, then this was the blowback to the United States. Now, I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that we should allow terrorist elements to dictate American foreign policy. Of course we shouldn't. But... I think when evaluating 
foreign policy decisions, it's important to keep in mind, will this foreign policy decision make the United States more safe or less safe? And if you can avoid blowback, then I think that's generally a good idea. We we don't, as a country, want to do things that are going to make the United States and the people that live here less safe, right? I mean, I don't think I've said anything that's crazy or radical by any stretch. Does everybody follow me so far? Good. And I'm not trying to sound um, patronizing, but I realize when you talk about foreign policy and through the prism of what's going on in current events and through the prism of world history, things can be a little complicated and seldom are the areas of foreign policy as black and white as everybody likes to make them out to be. Okay. This is one reason why the United States has had a consistent policy going back decades, administration after administration, of not attempting to assassinate world leaders. And it was that particular executive order that was dealt with and discussed a great deal when it's executive order 11905 initially signed by president ford and has been signed by every president since then democrat and republican it prohibits any member of the um you know it prohibits political assassination Right. Because before that, there were multiple attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro and other world leaders. And this basically put an end to that. And there are many who believe that it was the attempts by the Kennedy administration and the United States to assassinate Fidel Castro, which then blew back to the United States and resulted in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I'm not saying that's my theory. In fact, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but there are people that believe that. Now, a couple of years ago, President Trump uh, essentially ordered the killing of one of the leading Iranian generals, Qasem Soleimani. And I I was a Trump supporter. I voted for him twice. This was an area that I was... Very critical of. This was about two years ago, two and a half years ago. I did not think that we should assassinate a foreign general. Now, this is not a Dr. Ayman al-Zwahiri type. This is not a terrorist that was working on a plan to uh, murder civilians. No. This was not a uh, Mullah Omar type. No. This was a general in a foreign army, a leading general and a very popular political figure in Iran. And I was one of the people that said at the time, hey, there's a reason we have this executive order. If we go out and start murdering foreign generals, then the next thing you know, we're going to put American officials at risk of being assassinated by other governments. Why are we talking about this now? Well, it came out yesterday that U.S. officials 
said that a member of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps was in Iran and wanted over an alleged plot to kill former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. This fellow by the name of Sharam Persafi um, was likely seeking revenge for the U.S. strike that killed Soleimani. Soleimani spearheaded the Iranian military operations in the Middle East. So this, to me, is another textbook example of blowback. Now, some of you might say, well, who cares? And by the way, it looks like Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state at the time, may have also been targeted. Some of you might say, who cares? If it means assassinating and and killing a bad guy, and I'll be the first to admit Soleimani was a bad guy, um, then it shouldn't matter. I'm willing to put American officials at risk if it means killing some bad guys in foreign governments. I don't subscribe to that theory. This is one of the most straightforward examples of blowback in recent memory. Direct retaliation by Iran for Bolton's own role in an assassination plot. Because that that Soleimani assassination plot, that was all Bolton. That was a Bolton-Pompeo deal. And you know who knew that? The Iranians. And they said, well, okay, these are the guys that killed our general. We're going to kill them. And I think that whoever the next president is, they need to keep this in mind, that if you go around assassinating foreign generals and foreign leaders, that this could result in assassination plots against American leaders. And as critical as you might be of John Bolton or Mike Pompeo or whomever, that's the last thing we want. So I think this is an important lesson to keep in mind. John Bolton talked about this uh, Iranian assassination plot yesterday. It was very serious, and I don't think it was uh, uh, John Bolton alone uh, that was the target here. I think uh, there were many uh, former administration officials, but also private American citizens. And it, it really tells you the real nature of the regime in Tehran, that they are threatening American citizens on American soil. Uh, so that's that's that. Hey, speaking of the military, I asked my friend um, Mike Zambluskis, uh to call in. Mike is a friend of mine for t- over 20 years, and uh, he is uh, an activist and he has been one of the leaders that is protesting the closing of the VA hospital here in New York City. He's a veteran himself, also happens to be running for Congress. So when he mentioned that he's holding this rally today, I said, you know, why don't you call in, tell folks about it, and if people want to come and show support for keeping this VA hospital open, maybe they can come. Mike, uh, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for staying up late. Thanks for calling in. Not a problem. Um, Actually, I probably should have texted you. The uh, rally has been canceled because it's been pulled off the closure list. Oh, well, that's great. I mean, that's the, that's a, that's a pretty successful rally then. <laughs> yeah, didn't even hold it, and it's been pulled off his closure list. <laughs> so, uh, no, if people don't know, uh, a lot of uh, attention's been paid to this uh, congressional primary in um, in Manhattan go- going on between Carolyn Maloney and Gerald Matt Nadler and Siraj Patel. There was another debate yesterday. Uh, the debates have gotten, in some cases, national attention. You're actually, uh, even though most of your political career has been as an independent, you're actually the Republican running in that race. So um, what brought this about? Why did they pull that hospital off the uh, closure list? Uh, well, I think uh, the Democrats realize that it's going to hurt them too much. 
And it's also it was also foolish. New York has a shortage of hospital beds, and now you're going to close the 23rd Street uh, Veterans Hospitals. That we have, you know, a severe homeless population, and uh, a lot of them are vets. And the only place they get their medical attention is as the VA. Um, you have many people that, uh, and the Democrats are in trouble politically, even in New York City. I mean, I'm getting, uh, I already have a couple Democratic endorsements uh, from district leaders and former uh, state committee members, uh, county committee members. But uh, I think they realize even here in New York, they're in trouble in a lot of things. And that's why they pulled back on it. Schumer stepped up and said, oh, oh, can't do this. Well, that's great. Uh, Great job. Great job uh, organizing opposition to this. And uh, if after the Democratic primary on August 23rd, I know that uh, a lot of people are going to be watching this as a national race. Now, a lot of folks, and we're talking, Mike Zambluska is kind enough to call in. You can check out his website, electmikez.us. That's electmikez.us. A lot of folks are going to say, Mike, oh, this district's in Manhattan. It's a, a, a pretty liberal district. It's almost always been represented by a Democrat. Does a Republican have any chance of making the election competitive in the general? What do you say to that? Absolutely. Uh, This is one of those uh, strange years where it's a redistricting year and the district has changed a lot. You have issues that are that neither the uh, neither of the candidates or all three of the candidates really aren't addressing, uh, which I'm hearing all the time about inflation. Uh, You know, every time somebody goes to the supermarket, I mean, Biden today said, oh, zero inflation. I'm sorry, you go back uh, and a dozen eggs is costing you over five bucks now. That's inflation. I'm sorry. Yeah, that that's and that's uh, that's certainly it. for sure. The crime issue is a big issue and people are tired of the nonsense. They're actually starting to see through um, a lot of the lies that they were told about the COVID lockdowns, what COVID's doing. I mean, you have parents that are furious that their young kids still had to be masked. We were the only place in the in the country and in the world that were masking our young elementary school kids. And now people are starting to see information coming out of Europe. Like uh, I think it was uh, Denmark, uh, uh, Netherlands, and a couple other countries that said we should stop. They stopped giving vaccines to kids under twelve. Yet we're telling. In this country, give vaccines to kids at six months old. Mm-hmm. They're not telling. Uh, uh, the German Ministry of Health has stated that one in five thousand uh, young men from the age of eighteen to twenty-four are developing heart disease. Yeah, well, and it's it's certainly going to be. We're trying to stop this. Yeah, it's certainly yeah, going to be. Yeah going to be interesting. Uh, people could check out uh, your website, electmikez.us. Uh, Mike, keep us posted on uh, on the campaign and, uh, and uh, especially on all these issues related to veterans that I know you're so vocal on. Okay, I appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Mike. Take care. 800-848-9222. Uh, by the way, so I've been meaning since I've been back to talk about the Nancy Pelosi trip to Taiwan. It was very controversial at the time. Ultimately, she did end up going to Taiwan, 
uh, against the wishes of the White House. Here's a little bit of Speaker Pelosi in Taiwan. 43 years ago, with the Taiwan Relations Act, America made a bedrock promise to always stand with Taiwan. And on this strong foundation, we have built a thriving partnership. So when she she defied essentially Joe Biden and the White House, and she was on a valedictory tour of Asian capitals, and the New York Times wrote that her trip to Taiwan began with her plane departing from Kuala Lumpur and heading southeast towards the Indonesian part of Borneo, then turning north to fly along the eastern part of the Philippines, a more direct and shorter route would have been to fly northeast in a direct route over the South China Sea to Taiwan. So they think that Pelosi's avoidance of the South China Sea might have something to do with China's claim to 90% of it and China's control of these little mini islands in that sea that Beijing has converted into air, missile, and naval bases. So after 19 hours in Taiwan, Speaker Pelosi then flies to South Korea, where her reception was described as cool. The president, Yoon Suk Yul, um, was at home in Seoul when Pelosi arrived. He didn't even meet her. Instead, he held a 40-minute phone conversation. See, South Korea, like its neighbors, is very eager not to offend China. So consider what's going on here. It's a very unusual situation. South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, and New Zealand, they all rely on who as their number one ally in defending them against China? Who? United States. But all of them, every country that I just named, they boast China as their number one trading partner. Think about that. South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand, they all rely as us on us to keep them safe from China, but their number one trading partner is China. It goes to show you, there's a little schizophrenic foreign policy, not just in our country, but elsewhere. So how did Beijing react to Nancy Pelosi's 19 hours in Taiwan? Well, with warplanes. They conducted live-fire exercises from Thursday at noon to Sunday at noon, at six sites surrounding Taiwan. The effect of these live firings at and around Taiwan was essentially that of a naval quarantine or blockade. China also announced new diplomatic and economic sanctions against the U.S. and Taiwan. They canceled talks with Washington on climate change and on military relations. Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was the triggering event that ignited these Chinese war games against Taiwan. But these air, naval, and missile exercises were not planned in a day. They appear to have been prepared as a dress rehearsal for how China intends to go about bringing Taiwan home to the motherland. Whenever President Xi Jinping decides that the time is right. So, um, as the live firing went on for 72 hours... The White House echoed the same thing that Nancy Pelosi just said, that the U.S. recognizes Beijing's claim that Taiwan is a part of China and does not contest that claim, nor have we any intention of shifting U.S. policy on Taiwan. But um, what was the message sent and the message received 
from these war games with which China responded to this Pelosi visit to Taiwan. From Beijing, the message sent to the United States was very clear. China regards Taiwan as its detached province, and it will confront any power, including the United States, that's perceived to be challenging that political reality. So the White House didn't move any planes, didn't move any missiles to counter these Chinese live fire exercises. Instead, it reassured China that Pelosi's visit did not represent any change to U.S. policy. It's hard to see how the free and democratic nations in Asia and U.S. allies like Japan, South Korea and Australia could not have taken away the conclusion that Chinese aggressiveness was just meant by American, I don't know, acquiescence. And uh, Pat Buchanan, who has been a guest on the show many times, he had a very interesting column before Pelosi went asking the question, is Taiwan's independence worth war? And he quotes Dr. Samuel Johnson, one of the most famous quotes of all time. When a man knows he's about to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. So Buchanan writes, if there's any benefit to be realized from the collision between China and the U.S. over Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, it's this. America needs to reflect long and hard upon what it is we will fight China to defend in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. China, after all, is a nuclear weapons nation with a manufacturing base larger than our own, an economy equal to our own, and a population four times ours, and fleets of warships larger in number than the U.S. Navy. So I want to ask you the same question. Are you willing to go to war with China over Taiwan? Because it appears that China is. 800-848-9222. See, since President Nixon's trip to China and President Jimmy Carter's uh, adoption of this policy towards Taiwan in 1979, the U.S. is not obligated to come to the defense of Taiwan against China, which claims that island, which is about the size of Maryland, as part of China. Um, our military posture has been one of what they call strategic ambiguity, where we will not commit to go to war to defend Taiwan, nor will we take the war option off the table is Taiwan, if Taiwan is attacked. But if the U.S. went to war to defend Taiwan, what would it mean? We would essentially be risking our own security and possible survival to prevent that from being imposed on the island of Taiwan the same regime that's being imposed on Hong Kong without any U.S. military resistance. So if Hong Kong, a city of 7 million, can be transferred to the control of the Chinese without resistance to the U.S., why should it be worth a major U.S. war with China to prevent that same fate and future from happening to 23 million Taiwanese? So a lot of people will say, well, if you allow China to take Taiwan without U.S. resistance, then our treaties to fight for the Philippines, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, they are suspect. So if we allowed Taiwan to be taken without taken by China without intervening, some people say the value of U.S. commitments to fight to defend scores of other allies in Europe and Asia would not be worth the paper they're printed on. 
So um, I don't know where we're going here. But I think what we all need to think about is a couple things, a few questions. If there is, are we willing to fight a war over Taiwan? If this should lead to a U.S.-China war, what would we be fighting for? And what would victory look like? Would it be a restoration of the status quo? Would it be permanent independence for Taiwan? And again, why would we risk our own peace and security for Taiwan's freedom and independence? I hate to put it that way, but my concern is American independence. 800-848-9222, especially when we would not risk our own peace and security for the freedom of independence of Hong Kong. So China in this, the 21st century, has grown massively, both militarily and economically, and in both real and relative terms at our expense. So the growth trends for China, which has four times as many people as there are Americans, is not favorable to the United States. So we'll, we'll see where this goes, but uh, I don't have any answers. I only have questions. If you have comments, answers, questions, whatever, we'll take them next. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We love Wings. Uh, There was some band Paul McCartney was in uh, before Wings. For the life of me, I can never remember the name of it. But uh, big, big fan of Paul McCartney and Wings. All right. Uh, I know uh, we have been negligent in getting to the the mail this week. But look, we were off Monday. That threw our whole schedule into disarray. So we're going to try and get to the mail uh, in the next couple of minutes. By the way, let me tell you what's coming up for the rest of the show. Uh, Next hour. We're going to talk with Dr. Harvey Kesselman, president of Stockton University. Looking forward to that. Fourth hour, Brian Kilmeade joins us for our weekly chat. Looking forward to that as well. Uh, I, you know, I don't understand this guy. This guy, maybe I'm just lazy because I talked to Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz yesterday did at least 20 TV shows, at least I'm going to say 60 radio shows, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. Stayed up late with me, sounded like a million bucks. He did a whole, he's writing like crazy. 
Kill meat is the same thing. And then when, I, when we were texting yesterday, I didn't realize, I just saw the replay on one of the monitors in the studio here. I didn't realize he filled in for Tucker Carlson last night. So the guy did Fox and Friends yesterday for three hours, did his own show for three hours, then came back and did Tucker. Presumably he slept at some point, And then he's going to come on with me before doing it all over again. To me, it's just remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. 800-848-9222. Al in Yonkers has been waiting. Hello, Al. Yeah, hi, Frank. You know, uh, just two things. Uh, I just wanted to point out that you mentioned about blowback and about the the general with the uh, who was taken out a couple of years ago when uh, President Trump was the uh, commander in chief. Well, that individual, as far as I know, in my own opinion, uh, he was a bad person. He was a protege of the Ayatollah, whose father uh, was the one who caused the Shah to abdicate the throne in 1979 and this group of people if they could this is my own personal opinion if they could have gotten to secretary bolton excuse me national security advisor former bolton or former secretary pompeo they would have done it uh in the future uh i just wanted to say in regards to the iranian problem that if the israeli government which there'll be an election coming up soon, and uh, Netanyahu is going to run again, and maybe he'll get in office again. Uh, They really better deal with this problem, because if you had hawks like uh, the now-deceased Sharon or his successor, Prime Minister Olmert, they already would have acted on the Iranians, because their word is never any good. They are not truthful people. All right. Well, I mean, I think that let's let's try to refrain from overt racism, Al. But I, I'll, let me um, agree with the first part of what you said. Um, General Soleimani, not a good guy. I, I was very clear on that. I said the same thing. But there's a lot of people. There's a lot of generals and a lot of military leaders around the whole world that are not good guys. So are we going to assassinate them all? I don't think that would be prudent. I don't think so. 800-848-9222. Stuart is in Forest Hills. Hello, Stuart. Yes. Uh, hi, Frank. So regarding your comments on Taiwan, just like on Ukraine, you're 100% correct now on Taiwan. Does anyone think that this country under the Biden administration, which is under a position of weakness, is going to go to war with China and succeed? Taiwan's on their border. They're going to kick our ass. We're going to get bloodied up. And if you want to harm this country, that's a great way to do it. Well, Stuart, sorry, you got you got cut off there, Stuart. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I say people have to understand that we're in a position of weakness now under the Biden administration. Even under Trump, he wouldn't want to go to war over Taiwan. So that would be a deadly thing, a deadly mistake. We have to know how to use our power, when to use our power, when to push, when not to push. And in this situation, we need to use proper 
foreign policy to avert an issue with Taiwan, but we cannot go to war. We, we, we would suffer a defeat against China. Well, and by the way, even if we wouldn't suffer a military defeat, think about what would do economically. Do you know how many yeah, goods exactly. uh, that we are using every day that are made in China? Do you know how much money uh, the Chinese are lending to the United States government so we could continue this borrow and spend credit card um, you know, financing of our, our government? But um, – tank our economy. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, Now, Dennis in Brooklyn has a different view. Stuart, stay on the line. Dennis, tell Stuart why you disagree with him. Well, I I disagree to a certain extent. He is correct that we will get beat over there, but uh, where we draw the line, what we really need to do is to slow down their economy and our independence on China in order to make them not attack Taiwan, because the next option would be the Philippines or Japan, and who's to stop them? But but oh, so the, the the fundamental question, though, that De- Dennis, that Pat yeah. Buchanan asked and that I repeated and I'm asking folks right. to answer is, is it worth going to war with China over Taiwan? It sounds like you're saying the answer now is also no. It, see, that's, that's like a two-part answer. You have to draw the line somewhere. Well, what kind of war are you going to draw to them? Is it going to be an economic uh, economic war? Is it going to be um, military war, strategic military war that you uh, – low-level nukes or no nukes at all? How do you, how do you deal with that? I understand I – under, I understand the question, but it's a little more complicated. Well, than right, that. foreign policy usually is. Uh, thank, thank you, Dennis. Bobby in Long Beach, do you disagree with Stewart's analysis? Uh, yeah, Frank. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I I disagree with you. With all due respect, uh, how dare you? I don't. I don't. Yeah, uh, I don't understand how you don't learn from history. I don't want to fight with anybody. I'm an ex-combat vet to Vietnam, eleven AB ten. And I don't want to fight with anybody. More, me more. But let me tell you something. If you read the Art of War, they're cutting it right out of the book, the Chinese. And what they're doing is, what they're doing is, they're taking little bits at a time. You can't put an island in the middle of the ocean and say, hey, look, that's all. That's so, all Bobby, right. let's talk Taiwan. Are you willing to go to war to defend yeah, Taiwan? <laughs> No, I'm not willing to go to war. Okay, so I'm willing, we're on. I'm the... willing to do Trump said and Reagan. You never get into a oh. war by being... right. Well, we, Trump, Trump and Reagan weren't uh, weren't visiting Taiwan either. All right, so it sounds like nobody is willing to uh, go to war to defend Taiwan, which uh, is not that surprising. Stuart, thank you very much for your uh, your thank thorough you. analysis of the uh, situation. Thank you very much. And we'll do the mail in just a moment. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Joe! Joe! Uh, Joe has other things to do. Uh, 800-848-9222. John in Brooklyn has been waiting a while. Hello, John. Frank, I am going to strongly disagree with you, and I would feel this way even if I myself was not of ethnic Chinese descent. Uh, Taiwan is a flourishing democracy. We should allow the people the right to retain their independence. I'm not saying we should put American troops there, but what we could do is to give them arms. We can help establish a no-fly zone over the island. 
we can also, and, I, and then we can thank our Beijing Paymaster President, uh, because he and his family has been getting a lot of money from their Beijing Paymasters for, for not stiffening tighter economic restrictions against China, and not only because of Taiwan, but because of what they've done in the South China Sea against the Philippines, uh, what they're trying to do with India, and even Japan is Yeah, worried. again, you know, John, I don't think there's a person on the radio that's been tougher on China than me, not only for what they're doing in foreign policy, but how they manipulate their currency, what a violator of human rights uh, they are. I'm all for decoupling the United States economy from the Chinese economy. What I'm not willing to do is go to war with uh, a country with one of the largest nuclear arsenals in the world – who also happens to be one of our biggest trading partners, who also happens to be um, the, uh, one of our biggest lenders. I mean, at, at what point do you cut off your nose to spite your face? Well, we're not going to solve the Asian geopolitical problem tonight, so let us go through the mail. Our first piece of correspondence is on Facebook, where Carol Runo writes in the Facebook group, Book another week or two in Cape May. Curtis is a real pleasure. You, not so hot. Can your ego take this message? Unfortunately, Carol, my ego could not take this message, and I spent uh, most of the seven days that I was in Cape May crying. Over uh, over your message. That is the uh, that is the truth. Uh, this is via email. Uh, George Ann writes, Hi, Frank. Hope you enjoyed Cape May. Last night, I heard Alyssa from Manhattan tell you she received her best question T-shirt. I haven't received mine yet. It's been a few weeks already. My question was chosen when I asked, what does a producer actually do on the radio for the host? Um, I gave all my biographical data to your screener. Alyssa raved about the T-shirt. I figured I better write to remind you about mine. Uh, uh, Georgiana from uh, Brooklyn, and she wrote it out, Brooklyn. P.S. You did a great job on first base. You can catch and throw like a pro. I noticed, Georgiana, that you did not mention my hitting ability, even though I did hit a double in that game where our offense did not necessarily distinguish ourselves. Uh, Kenneth, do you have anything to say for yourself? Any idea why Georgiana has not received her shirt? I mean, I I put it through to, uh, you know, who we needed to put it through to, so mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, we're going to investigate that one, uh, Georgiana, but thank you for your acknowledgement of my softball skills, even though you did not acknowledge my hitting ability. It's okay. Uh, this is uh, a, me- a correspondence from the world of... Twitter, Irish Today writes, show is a snooze. Dominic bobblehead talk, excruciatingly boring. Talking about a beat up box, question mark? Well, different strokes for different folks, my friend. Uh, Ellen, who I have actually recruited to write my eulogy. She writes, hi, Frank. I was completely blown away by last night's show. This is 
the, the one 24 hours ago. I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but I don't really know where to start. I actually didn't think I'd be able to listen last night because I was exhausted from having listened the night before. But I set my alarm, and boy, oh boy, was I rewarded. All of your guests and topics were fabulous. The show was chock full of valuable content. Rosen, Dershowitz, Scott Weiner, Weiner. A discussion about drug overdoses, the cancel culture vis-a-vis the coach, Kale Gundy, returning back to the workplace, Zelensky, and more. How do you manage to cram so much in and also do it in an informative and entertaining fashion? And also, practically speaking, how can you keep your own focus for four straight hours? Anyway, thanks once again. Ellen, you're welcome. That's all I can say. You're welcome. And thank you. This is a piece of uh, good old-fashioned mail correspondence. And if you ever want to, uh, let's see, what, what is this? This is an article sent to me by Wallace Cheatham. And uh, it's a photocopy of a, an, a New York Times article from May 17th, 2022. Headline, Surge in Hate Crimes Against Black People is seen in FBI data, far exceeding attacks on other groups. Thank you. Appreciate that, Mr. Wallace Cheatham. Uh, Okay, this is an email from Chris. Frank, I'm a pharmacist. I've watched this opioid epidemic explode. The heroin epidemic was clearly fueled by Big Pharma, specifically OxyContin. You are spot on. Intense night of incredible topics. You make my work night fly, man. Thanks. Chris, I will say to you the same thing. You're welcome. Um, Thomas writes, uh, Hi, Frank. Glad you had a, nice t- had a nice time off. Cape May, one of our top spots. Beautiful shore and great places to eat. Your interview with Scott Weiner was one of the best I've listened to and made me hungry in the middle of the night, too. Kate and I just had our favorite pizza last night from the following popular local restaurant, Kinchley's. Best tasting thin crust pizza, and I get my own takeout large with Fra Diablo sauce. And for lunch weekly, we enjoy this place's pizza by the slice. Uh, and then he provides a link to sqpizza.com and talks about the f- fabulous ingredients they have. Well, that's very kind, Thomas. Thank you for acknowledging that, uh, you know, that, uh, that very pertinent interview. Um, Lawrence writes, subject, why we love your shows, Frank. Hi, Frank. First, welcome back. Our very favorite segments and features of your generally very informative and entertaining programs are as follows. Question time. This must be unique to your show when callers and emailers ask you practically any question and you respond without reservation and very honestly indeed. The quiz, of course. The 15 seconds of fame reading emails on the air, and the anecdotes you experience in and out of the studio and especially at home. Well, that's very nice. Uh, Jay Lawrence. All right. Uh, This is from Boonie Henry, who came to New Year's Eve Eve, uh, this year. She's a a listener in New Hampshire. Excuse me, uh, Virginia. But she came all the way up to New Jersey for New Year's Eve Eve uh, last December. This is a piece of snail mail. Dear Frank, enclosed is a mug for your collection. What did I, I hope I put the mug aside somewhere. Recently, I toured the home Scotchtown of Patrick Henry, located 25 miles north of Richmond, Virginia. As you may know, Patrick Henry was a major figure of the American Revolution. Patrick Henry was the first governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
at his first home, Scotchtown. He was married to his wife, Sarah Shelton, and they had six children. Sarah died, and he then married Dorothea Dandridge. They had nine children. Busy fellow. Even though I know you have some president mugs, I thought I would send you this Patrick Henry mug. Where did I do? What did I do with this? Where did I put it? As a bit of a reminder of his influence in the establishment of the United States. On March 23, 1775, when the Virginia Convention was meeting at St. John's Episcopal Church in Richmond, Patrick Henry attended. He's well known for his speech, which included the following. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Although he opposed the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, which he thought put too much power in the hands of a national government, it was his influence which helped to create the Bill of Rights, giving his personal freedoms and limiting the government's power. Just as a reminder, my husband and I came to your New Year's Eve Eve party last year, which we thoroughly enjoyed. We live in the Richmond, Virginia area. I continue to listen to you live or your your podcast and thoroughly enjoy your show, The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, best to you and your career and to your family. And then she signs it, Booney Henry, no relation to Patrick Henry. Here is an email that is very serious. This is from uh, Esther. Oh, no, excuse me, Sasha. Frank, so happy about your success, your new life, and everything. You deserve it. You're quite amazing and helpful during my insomniac nights. We do like you to share your personal stuff. I'm glad you and Curtis keep each other, help each other so much. Keep up with these guests. Save your pipes. So I'm reaching out for my friend Esther, who's in her fourth year of dialysis, just in case there's a possibility of getting help. Be well. And then she gives me her friend's information. So this is someone that needs a kidney. Guys, I really, we have a lot of listeners that are waiting for kidneys. We have Troy, who calls in this show regularly. We have Sophia. And we have Esther. So far, only one of you has so far offered a kidney. I really would like to, maybe next week we'll pick a day to do Kidney Day, where we do nothing but try to collect kidneys from listeners. Um, You only need one. So if you really want to help someone and help save their life, literally, give them a kidney. Uh, If you are interested, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I'd love to get some of these nice folks some kidneys because I can't afford to lose any listeners because they don't have the bright amount of kidneys. All right, this is very nice. This is a card. It doesn't say who it's from. Oh, uh, this is from Ann and Reginald Patrick. And then this is a nice note. It says, looks like a, a card for Carmine. Dear Rachel and Frank, God bless, wishing you happiness and all the best. Uh, Anne and Reginald Patrick. We wanted to send this to you for baby Carmine. Uh, my father's name is Carmine. Oh, that's nice. Think, um, I can't make out the word. Love your show so much. Very informative, interesting, and lots of fun. Anne and Reginald. That's nice. And then there's a gift here, which is very nice. I'm going to take this home and open it with Rachel and Carmine today. Thank you very much, Anne and Reginald. All right. For everybody else that uh, did not get their letter read today, you can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. And perhaps you will be featured on the next edition of... It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Vic Damone singing about the girl from Ipanema. Oh, a great set of pipes on Vic Damone, am I right? A couple of quick notes here. One, I want to remind you, uh, for all our Long Island or New York area listeners, I will be this Friday uh, out in Deer Park from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at an event that is hosted by the president of our Long Island division, WABC's Long Island division, Frank McKay, longtime friend of mine for 23 years. And uh, it's at a place called The Other Room. It's called The Other Side of Midnight at The Other Room. And what it is, it's basically a networking event. Uh, I'm going to speak for a few minutes, and then maybe we'll do a live edition of Ask Frank Anything. Uh, It's going to be from 6 to 9 p.m. on Friday. Free buffet, music. And for the first 150 people that come, there's going to be a... um, complimentary small bottle of Prosecco. So it's definitely worth coming to. I'm trying to load this event up with our our listeners. It's at 511 Comac Road in Deer Park this Friday, 6 p.m. Eastern. So I hope to see you there. Uh, Also want to remind you, you know who's not here next week? Alex Barnard is not here. Actually, tomorrow he's not here. Is he off next week too? Is he going on vacation? I feel like he could use a vacation, don't you? I mean, don't you get the sense he's getting a little? He's getting a little, uh, a little frustrated. Jumpy. Yeah, that's the word. Jumpy's the word. Jumpy's jumpy. the word. Um, for instance, uh, today Alex happened to ask me for Brian Kilmeade's phone number, even though Brian Kilmeade has been on the show for every week for the last seven weeks, and uh, I, I, apparently all the notes in your phone had been erased. Yeah, no, that is absolutely true, though. I, I have not just notes about from other shows, but, like, you know, lyrics for songs that I've written, uh, you know, personal oh. mem- uh, m- memos, things like that, that are just all gone now, inexplicably. But Cloud. D- Cloud. Yeah, I was going to say, Cloud. isn't it automatically I, backed up somewhere? I don't. I don't back up on the—I don't have iCloud set up on my phone because I have my—it's really convoluted reason why it got— uh, deleted or why I don't have an iCloud, but suffice to say, I don't have it blah, backed blah, up blah, on blah, the iCloud. Blah, blah. Well, <laughs> but let me ask this question, and I, actually, I've similar stuff has happened to me, so I'm not unsympathetic to what you're going through. But if it's a guest that we're having on on a regular basis, why not just save that guest's phone number in your mobile phone, or save their number in your address book? I have no idea. I honestly thought you were going to say, why don't you have the number committed to memory? No, 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 no. I wouldn't expect that. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, but for folks that we have on a lot, like uh, Brian Kilmeade. Or... I, I do use a different number than that number. Just I won't go into, obviously, the the whole. This is really something. Yeah. I'll, is... I'll explain it to you off air. Uh... <laughs> You've got a problem. <laughs> All right. Um, well, where are you going on vacation? Are you saying? Lake Placid, New York. I go oh, every summer. I've never been up there. Yeah. It's supposed to be nice up there. Beautiful. They had the Olympics up yet there that one. Oh, yeah, 1980. Very nice. All right. Uh, well, we'll miss you, but I think you could use it. I'll miss you guys, too. Yeah. All right. Uh, until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So uh, there's a congressman by the name of Mike Gallagher, uh, not to be confused with the talk show host, Mike Gallagher, who's a friend of mine. But this uh, particular congressman is a Republican. I believe he's been a guest on the Cats at Night show. And I like this guy. Uh, He has been very good on the issue of UFOs and UAPs, we call them now. And he has actually introduced an amendment to the Defense Authorization Act, which is this massive bill which dictates a lot of defense priorities and a lot of defense spending priorities for the year. He's introduced an amendment to the Defense Authorization Act to offer new protection for UFO whistleblowers. So Congressman Gallagher has pushed for a new rule to establish a process for receiving reports concerning unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, it's hoped that with these in place, soldiers, military contractors, other government employees, they'll feel more comfortable sharing details of unexplained phenomenon that they see on the battlefield. So I have to look at this and think this didn't happen in a vacuum. To me, this means that there's a high likelihood that there are all sorts of people in the government, including in the military, that want to come forward and blow the whistle on information that's out there about UAPs and they're concerned about their careers being jeopardized. What do you think? I think this is a great idea. And I say good for you, Congressman Gallagher. I just made a note to invite uh, Congressman Gallagher on this show. Hopefully all my notes don't get deleted as Alex Barnard's were. But uh, if you want to comment on this, 800-848-9222, do you agree with Congressman Gallagher and me that Congress needs a mechanism in place to offer whistleblower protection to people talking about UFOs? In my view, these UFO whistleblowers absolutely should have immunity. And it reminded me of the situation involving Bob Lazar. And there's a great documentary on this, and I've interviewed uh, Jeremy um, Corbell, the maker of this documentary, many times. He's been on the show several times. He's one of the leading UFO journalists in the whole country. And this documentary came out about four years ago. It's called Bob Lazar, Area 51, and Flying Saucers. And Bob Lazar was a physicist, And he broke, back in 1989, as a whistleblower, the story of Area 51 and the U.S. government's work on alien spacecrafts. And he blew the whistle, he shocked the world, and then went silent, in part because of the reaction. Now, this is a little bit of uh, Jeremy Corbell talking This is a little bit of Jeremy Corbell talking with Bob Lazar about the suppression of information. This is uh, from from the documentary, I believe, or it might have been from a subsequent thing. But this is Jeremy Corbell talking with Area 51 whistleblower Bob Lazar. You're telling me there's a different physics. 
that was your job. You were working on that. The science was something we were trying to figure out, but we knew how the devices would operate. You know, for instance, the propulsion of the craft. Everything that we have, whether it's a propeller plane or a jet or a rocket, it throws something out the back, either high-speed exhaust or a large volume of air. It's an action-reaction force. The action is you throw something out the back, and it moves you forward. That's how everything works. This is the first time there's a craft that's it's a reactionless craft. It's a field propulsion craft. And what it does is it creates a distortion in space and time in front of it, where space actually bends. It's just technology that doesn't exist yet. I mean, you're talking about uh, that there's... Science doesn't even know what gravity is, much less how to produce it or control it. And here is a device that's producing it and controlling it. Put a bowling ball in the middle of your bed, and then a foot in front of it, take your fist and push down on the mattress. The bowling ball will roll towards it. And that's exactly how the craft works. It creates a distortion right in front of it, and the craft falls forward. There, so there's a different physics that we're not... Well, the science that explains how the technology works. I mean, it's all encompassed as one thing, alien technology and science. What is the big picture? What are the What is the takeaway of your story after you're gone? You're not a, a rebel kid with a, with a jet car at Los Alamos today. Today's a different Bob Lazar, right? Right. What have we learned? What's, what's the message of your story? What's... The big thing is the suppression of extremely advanced technology and the suppression of unknown science. That's it. Think of how many other whistleblowers in the government now or recently in the government are out there waiting to come forward. So I'm wishing uh, I'm wishing Congressman Congressman Gallagher the best of luck with this. And I hope they're able to pass this uh, Whistleblower Protection Act as part of the Defense Authorization Act. Now, speaking of Jeremy Corbell, he was on uh, probably the most popular podcast in America the Joe Rogan experience, I don't know if that's literally true, but at least in terms of influence, it seems that it's true. He was on one of the most popular podcasts in America, the Joe Rogan experience, a few days ago. And he was talking about, his, he's the guy that publishes all these UFO videos. The, people come to him and he publishes them on his website and elsewhere. And one of his most famous videos was the three pyramid-shaped UAPs. Remember those? Those greenish, glowing pyramids, those flying triangles. He's the one that published them. And uh, here's a little bit of him talking with Joe Rogan about these pyramid-shaped UAPs. Not flying saucers, but flying pyramids. We put out this footage, and it was vetted. I vetted it. I reported what I was exposed to in classified briefings. What I released is completely legal for me to release. It was unclassified, but it was contained in a classified briefing. One of them was those bizarre pyramid-shaped videos. So that's the ones that they were seeing. They were pyramids. There's a lot of argument about that publicly. What it shows, that's up to other experts. By angle angle of observation and in the classified um, section, it goes into depth. They were pyramids. Pyramids. Cubes pyramids. So anyway, um, Jeremy yesterday, he tweeted, and I'm going to retweet this, and you you could see it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. He tweeted, 
Because a lot of people say, oh, these flying pyramids, they're not anything otherworldly. They're advanced U.S. technology or advanced technology from a U.S. military contractor or something along those lines. Now, he tweeted a newspaper from 1960, the Alamogordo Daily News in 1960. And in the report, it talks about the same type of UFO. Two, this is in the newspaper itself. Two unidentified pilots, one flying a Frontier Airlines plane, the other a military flight, a military jet, reportedly spotted the object. The FAA at Grand Junction said the object appeared to be spherical and enclosed and enclosing a square object. The lights alternately flashing the different colors appeared to emanate from the square object within the sphere. And so um, the description of the that's in this newspaper from 1960 does sound similar to some of the sightings that um, Jeremy was talking about on Joe Rogan's podcast. So he's saying that because there were similar sightings going back 62 years, he's saying it's unlikely that this is advanced uh, black ops projects or something along those lines. So we'll see. You judge for yourself. I'm just putting it out there. And uh, we'll see. We'll, we have to invite Jeremy back on the show sometime soon as well. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Charlie in Chester, New Jersey. Hello, Charlie. Oh, thank you, Frank. Uh, I've had some experience with these flying saucers, and some of them I, fe- I felt were uh, attack saucers from uh, communist uh, spirits and stuff. And uh, I found one way that they can sometimes be fought is if you ignite a fire, like simply with a match or a light or something like that, and you reach up, you ignite them. Some of them uh, can uh, actually burn like kindling. I'm not following. You, you're talking about you see an object flying in the in the sky and it can burn like kindling. Yes, yes. All right. Well, it, I mean, some of the videos that Jeremy has published are certainly um, they defy any kind of physics that I'm aware of. So it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, Charlie. Yes, and also there's nothing to mention the people inside the uh, the people that are manning the flying saucer. They uh, their souls get put, get stored in uh, rocks on the planet Earth. Their souls are at rest, at sleep in in those rocks, and uh, they can be fetched out of that uh, by certain techniques and go back into uh, experiences in the spirit world, uh, or they can stay at rest in in the uh, in the rocks where they where they are deposited. Well, how do you know that? Well, I I've learned certain things. Uh, I've studied a lot. I, I uh, I'm what you call a medium. I, I've I've uh, I've had contact with the spirit world, and I've had teachers that have taught me these things. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. What do you think of that, Matt Blaze? That was that's pretty interesting. All right. Very interesting. All right. Jr. is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jr. Hey. Good morning, Frank. How are you? Listen. I am listening. If you say, whistle, if you say whistleblower, your, your chances of getting protection right now are through the roof. 
because everybody wants to protect the whistleblower. And, you know, just say that the past UFO intelligence community was a toxic work environment, and they'll immediately protect you. Okay, well, so uh, I don't think there are specific protections for people in the military. Otherwise, I can't see why Congressman Gallagher would be trying to work so hard to add this in there. We're going to talk with Dr. Harvey Kesselman, uh, the president of Stockton University, in just a minute. But uh, Peter in the Bronx has been patiently holding. Uh, Hello, Peter. Hey, how you doing, uh, Frank? Um, um, Listen, I don't believe in UFOs. I never never did. And uh, I, I think a lot of it is explainable. I mean, I, and some of it, you know, some of the if you won't, if you remember, all the UFO stories started coming out mostly post World War II. So I, and if you ever, there's a book by Carl Sagan called The Demon Haunted World. He explained a lot of things in that book, and it, it, I read it back in the '90s. I know he passed away in the '90s. So, um, but it was a good book to read. I, I particularly don't believe in that. Bob Lazar, I think, has credibility issues. I know they did – somebody actually did a YouTube video where they did a psychological profile on him as well. Um, so I, I, I don't call him a credible source. And I, and I always look at the videos when, of, of what UFOs they show, and it's either, it's either a grainy video or it's a you – know, you know, even the ones with the military. I, I actually think it's an, uh, an opportunity for the government to say, let's keep the UFO going, and if we need to use it as a um, – as a way to scare people, you know, we can use it later on down the line. That's that's my belief. Hey, you may be right, Peter. I, I don't pretend to have any answers. Only questions. Only questions. All right. Uh, I am going to have some questions for Dr. Harvey Kesselman. He's leaving. He's the uh, president of Stockton University. He's stepping aside. Where is he going to go? And uh, what does that mean for the future of Atlantic City? We'll explore it straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report.
That's right. Once again, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in one of the most interesting states in one of the most interesting countries in all the world. Our weekly look at what's happening in Atlantic City. Now, you're used to, in this segment, hearing about the gambling of Atlantic City or the entertainment or the politics or the shows or the sports or any number of recreational activities or the restaurants. But one thing that maybe we've been negligent over the last year and a half in covering is the incredible contribution to higher education and academia that Atlantic City has made, particularly over the course of the last four years. I'm talking about Stockton University, and it's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, you know in those sitcoms where they have a laugh track and you hear people laughing and you hear people go, ooh, when folks are uh, doing something exciting. You know the sound that the collective studio audience would make when something sad would happen or unfortunate or mushing or mushy, and they would sort of collectively go, ah. Such was the case throughout South Jersey a couple of weeks ago when it was announced that Dr. Harvey Kesselman, the president of Stockton University, the fifth president of Stockton in its entire history, was leaving next year. So I thought, since uh, Dr. Kesselman announced that he is moving on, why not take this opportunity to talk a little bit about where Atlantic City fits in with higher education and where Stockton fits in within the Atlantic City community. And uh, we want to talk to Dr. Kesselman before we go. So I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Harvey Kesselman, the fifth president of Stockton University, who recently announced his forthcoming retirement. Dr. Kesselman, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Frank, and it's a pleasure to be on your show, and I can't thank you enough for your coverage of Atlantic City and your commitment to the city, um, and I'm excited to, to be able to share some of my experiences with you tonight. Well, wonderful. We're, we're excited, too. Now, one thing that people may not know about you is that you actually attended Stockton. It wasn't Stockton University at the time, but you were one of the early students at, at Stockton. What's it like to become president of the school that you attended? It's amazing. And you don't think about it. Actually, I was in the very first class that opened up, ironically, um, at the Mayflower Hotel on the boardwalk in Atlantic City at St. St. James in Tennessee. It's no longer there now uh, because the Galloway campus wasn't ready when we began back in 1971. And I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who was ever in the first class of a university to become its president. There are many, there are many presidents who were alumni of their university, but not in the very first class. And, of course, when I began back in 1971, you know, 50 years ago now, um, uh, who, who would have ever thought? that some, you know, 40-some years later, you would become its president. And and I spent my entire career here, um, and it's been a magnificent journey. And I started it, you know, as a tutor uh, and worked my way up through the organization. And it was, uh, it's been an incredible rise. So I've, I've been able to literally watch every single building on the campus um, from in Galloway. And of course, under my uh, my presidency, the, 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 the huge expansion in Atlantic City, as well as several, several other buildings on the Galloway campus. 
campus. So it's been it's been incredible. Um, I've served virtually every leadership position. I was the provost and executive vice president prior to being the president, the vice president for administration and finance of student affairs. Every time I wanted, it's funny. I, I most people who become a president usually have to go from one university to another to another. Being part of Stockton, it's almost been like different universities over over its fifty mm. years because we've constantly been growing. There was only a thousand students and fifty faculty and staff when we opened up. Yeah, and now we're yep. I know so that it's been I, huge. I know that class that you attended uh, back in nineteen seventy one, as you mentioned, uh, you were housed at the Mayflower Hotel, and they call it the Mayflower class. Now, for people that are familiar with Atlantic City, where was the Mayflower exactly? What's there now? Okay, well, that it would be called the Orange Loop now. It's ah. St. James in Tennessee, right in that area there, near the Irish Pub. It's like, uh, it, and it was it was literally on the boardwalk. Um, this was pre-casino Atlantic City, so you have to think about it there. So it was in one of its down modes, um, and we and and it was nearly condemned when we moved in. It was because we weren't supposed to open up there, uh, but it's in a great part of the city now. And for those folks who visit the city, the Orange Loop is really turned around, and there's a lot of exciting things going. On there, so for me, uh, it's great to see that happening. And we're down in the Chelsea area, which is closer to the Ventnor side of Atlantic City. For those people who know uh, what Atlantic City, the geography of Atlantic City on Albany Avenue is where our you know our new campus is, and it's a magnificent, magnificent project. Absolutely. There. Now you mentioned that that was pre-casino Atlantic City. Certainly a very different world. But I have to think at the Atlantic and the Atlantic City Boardwalk, even pre-casino, there's still plenty of trouble for college students to get into what what was it like to go to college in the early 70s in atlantic city it was actually pretty incredible because you had a lot of the clubs were still there, and so and remember the drinking age then was eighteen. It was and so and it was at you know it was at the height of the Vietnam War, uh, and we had a lot of veterans who came to veterans on the GI Bill after they left Vietnam came to Stockton, mm. so, and and our faculty, our original faculty, were were very young, and uh, and as a result, we had students older older than the faculty, uh, and you know there were, there were all the clubs in the city, uh, and and the students. Obviously, we're, we're part of that. We had a great bar in the, in in the in the uh, Mayflower called the Mickey Finn Room, uh, and and people who would be jamming in the city at other parts would pop in at the college and, and jam there because there's a college in town. So it was a pretty exciting time for us, and we were part of this sort of like experiment in higher education where faculty, students, staff all lived in a hotel, uh, and there was a sense of community that got developed in that first semester that that, that literally transferred over to when we went into Galloway. You know in the winter of 1972. Over the last five years, anybody that I talk to in Atlantic City, any elected official, any journalist, any booster of Atlantic City, they talk about the po- when they're trying to put a positive spin on the things that have been happening in Atlantic City, one of the first things they mention is the opening of the new Stockton campus in Atlantic City in the Chelsea area, as you mentioned, in 2018, and the parking garage that sort of came with it. Why did Stockton want to go to Atlantic City or at least expand its footprint in Atlantic City and how would you describe Atlantic City as a partner with the university oh that's that's a great question Frank um, we were designated in 2016 by the state of New Jersey as an anchor institution. And what that means is that in addition to providing educational opportunities for as many, you know, New Jersey and and regional now, because we draw from, you know, outside of New Jersey, 
quite frankly, because of the Atlantic City, um, designated anchor institution, which means that in addition to providing higher education to students and the like, it also should be an economic driver for the region. And we wanted to go in there, and we were committed because we're, we're, we're classified as a community-engaged institution, meaning that we have a genuine commitment to help the surrounding areas and be part of the community. And at, as an institution, it's part of our mission. And as a result, when we decided, okay, and working in close conjunction with, you know, we got tremendous support from the New Jersey legislature, uh, from, from county officials local officials, um, ent- entities like AC, you know, Development Corporation, uh, to, to join a, you know, a partnership to begin to build a project in an area that was vacant. We built on all vacant lots, and we didn't displace people to build in the city. And, and when we began building uh, the project, which was initially phase one, there's going to be at least three, maybe four phases, uh, where we, we've complete, obviously we opened up phase one, as you said, 2018, and we're, we'll open up phase two towards the end of my tenure as president. And um, part this $250 million project, if you count it all, which is in, partnering with South Jersey Industries. We have Atlantic Care as a tenant in, in one of our buildings. With all of these entities as an anchor, you basically most, – most cities that are part of a renaissance – Okay, need need both a hospital and an institution of higher education to be to make that happen. Think of a mall. Well, think of the old-fashioned malls, mm. where at one end was a Macy's, at the other end was a Sears, and then everything else builds between. That's the concept. Have Atlantic Care in part of the city, Stockton in another part of the city, and everything in between will begin to build. When we started building, Frank, that was the first you know new steel that went up in over a decade wow when we saw yeah new steel and you know initially if you recall you know um the my predecessor's concept was to they had purchased the casino that ultimately could not uh that i i actually had to sell because we we there were competing covenants but that was a pre-existing building and that really would never have been like a a, a true university feel to it. So what we wanted to do was to build horizontally, not vertically, build, find pockets of land where there was enough vacant land that we could make a real imprint and begin to change the whole neighborhood without the neighborhood losing its identity. Because what you don't want to do is displace all the people in the neighborhood. What you want to do is work with the people in the neighborhood and uh, provide them the kinds of not only educational opportunity, but the cultural opportunities. Mm. I mean, we were part of the founding of what's called 48 Blocks, which all the murals throughout the cities and things like that. We have thousands of students working in, in the city from you know working with in in some of the villages like family home villages and what you and I might refer to as projects tutoring students after school and so we've got students working in the city which is part of their education okay as well as we're learning from the city we're learning more about you know how communities thrive what are the kinds of things that colleges and universities need to do to uh, you know help advance uh, the city's agenda and the city quite frankly has been incredibly supportive. Uh, but 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 I don't think there's been an entity that hasn't been. Folks like you, the media has given us great coverage, uh, and and um, you know uh, 
we're thrilled to be able to do this and be part of something that is so transformative. And I think that's what we need to do. Absolutely. Uh, that it, it really model for a lot of other st- cities as well that have had some tough times. Uh, talking with Dov- Dr. Harvey Kesselman, the outgoing president of uh, Stockton University. Now, a- Atlantic City is not without its challenges for adults. I can't imagine what it's like for, for young people to be so close to so many vices. We all know that any college you take uh, in a, the most Puritan uh, the location in the world and there's going to be uh, students that find a way to get beer. In Atlantic City, you're you're close to a lot of alcohol establishments. You're close to a lot of gambling establishments. Uh, there's certainly a, a ready supply of marijuana, a lot of other vices. Does being the president of a college that has, a, has dorms in Atlantic City and that's so close in proximity to so many different vices, does that present some unique challenges to you that other college presidents might not have to deal with? You know, again, again, that was my greatest concern, obviously, when we moved into, you know, when we decided to move into that direction. But one of the things I have to be, have to really applaud the casino CEOs, because I met with every single one of them, and we formed as part of our 11th Institute for Gaming, Hospitality, and Tourism, and we talked about that. And they have not, they have been terrific working with to ensure that our students do not, you know, illegally enter and things of that nature. And in fact, many of our students have been employed at casinos, by the way, even before we were in Atlantic City, in, on our Galloway campus, many, many of them, in fact, during the 70s uh, and and. 80s when the casinos opened, there was not a sufficiently large workforce in our area, and they really poached many of our students to come over. They became, you know, they ultimately became CEOs. At one point, I think there were six Stockton graduates that were the CEOs of casinos in Atlantic City. So we've always had students who have been, you know, near, certainly near Atlantic City, have participated in once certainly of age in, you know, in the activities in Atlantic City. Uh, we have, you know, we, many programs that dealt with gambling and drugs and all the, all the kinds of things that other universities have. And we've never, and we have a great security force. Uh, the chief of police of Atlantic City is a Stockton grad. So we have a great relationship with the police. And there's been a great I don't know. I, I, I want to say that the city has embraced the college and university. It's almost like let you know, leave these young people alone. We want Stockton in our city. Uh, we're not going to exploit those young people. And and I think uh, many of my fears, and and certainly I was concerned that parents would be afraid. And, and that it's the most popular housing we have. Quite frankly, knock on wood, it's the, it's as safe as it is in Galloway. We've not no real incidents there since we've opened up. So you know. We, we, we think it's working well. And remember, we are as far away from the casinos as you can be mm. in Atlantic City because we're in the southern – well, the Ventnor side. And the first – you know, closest casino is the Trop. Uh, and that's, that's several blocks away. And even though that seems like it's not far, you know, students can get there if they want to get there from Galloway or from uh, Atlantic City. And, and let me tell you something else. There are college kids from throughout New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware that are in Atlantic City. Oh, we no. know that. Absolutely. 
That's for sure. I, I was one of them. Now, um, talk, talk with Dr. Harvey. And we're happy you were, Frank. <laughs> talk with Dr. Harvey Kesselman. Something that's not necessarily unique to your school, but I think a lot of New York and New Jersey college presidents are dealing with, is the legalization of recreational marijuana. A lot of mm-hmm. us remember uh, Sergeant Joe Friday in Dragnet uh, saying, Marijuana is the flame, heroin is the fuse, LSD is the bomb. And I'm wondering, what what does that mean for maybe your successor and other college counterpart, uh, college president counterparts in the area that New Jersey and New York are moving towards um, legalized recreational marijuana? Are, is that something you're fearful of as a as a an educator and a college leader? Well, yes and no. I'm, I, I'm not so fearful. There's always been, and you know, if, if, if a college or university president is, is being totally candid, there is alcohol and marijuana use on their campuses long before they were legal, okay? So that, that to, to, to to, to pretend that that doesn't happen is a mistake. What you do is, is you know, you have to be of age. Okay, that's number one. NCAA, uh, you have an NC. Your, your athletes are, are still under NCAA uh, requirements, so it's not as rampant as you would think. Clearly, there's more. I would say there's probably more marijuana use openly over over age, not in in the apartments because you're not allowed to smoke in the apartments and things in the dormitories. Actually, they almost should be called condos. The one in Atlantic City, they're so beautiful. But but so they're not allowed to, to do that, you know, inside. So outside, you know, it happens. And, and, and you know, just like the, uh, this past weekend, there was, you know, 90,000 people were at the fish concerts over the weekend. And these weren't Stockton folks. And, you know, clearly there was, you know, <laughs> recreational marijuana use. So I don't think I don't think you can avoid it. What you want to make sure is that you have drug awareness programs, that you have um, uh, safe houses for kids who might who might be experiencing those kinds of situations. Uh, I do think there's less drinking going on as a result of the legalization of marijuana. So, I mean, there could be, you know, and so. You 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 have all the preventative programs, you have all the support programs, and you just deal with the realities of society. You have no other alternative uh, as a college or university president. So we have to adapt to a, you know to a changing legal environment. You, you mentioned the dorms in Atlantic City. I know the second phase is under construction. From what I've heard from people that have seen them, these aren't dorms. They're more like what you described, the equivalent of condominiums with an oceanfront beach view. Is that one of the is that one of the selling points to prospective students and their parents is the extravagance of these dorms? Oh, there is no question about it. In fact, we you know, when we first opened, you always worry when you you open up the, the phase one was five hundred and thirty three beds. That's a that's a large structure, okay? And so 533 beds, it's 220,000 square feet residential center on the boardwalk, and you worry, are we going to fill this thing? Okay, we were filled within five hours. I mean, and, and by the seniors, the seniors and juniors just jumped on it. And, and uh, we have shuttles that run between Galloway and Atlantic City from 6.30 in the morning to midnight, or, you know, all, certainly during the academic year, seven days a week. And what happens is, because students take their courses in both places, but if they're living in Atlantic City, we wanted to give them access to both Galloway and Atlantic City courses and the like. And so, yes, I, I, we have parents who come down to 
it's funny when we have the open house programs and things of that nature where parents come down uh, who are looking to come come to uh, uh, to college, their kids to come to college, and when they see the when they see the condo, I call them condos, the residence halls in Atlantic City, it's funny. They'll come up to me and say, you know what? I'm going to send my kid home on a week, and I'm staying here. So I mean, it, and, <laughs> and they realize how clean, safe. It's an incredibly safe, well secure uh, building, and um, it's aesthetically pleasing. And there are, it's really made to uh, to to uh, create a sense of community. And I think that's what I think that's what's happened. So um, it's very very popular, uh, and and it's also anything we do in Atlantic City, and, and people. And I, I've said this when we were you know seeking funding that um, you know when you leave the state. And you know this, right? Because I mean, you're you're in, you're in the New York area. When you leave this state, I always say, and you go anywhere else. When you look up a weather forecast in New Jersey, Atlantic City is a, is a city that pops out. You, oh, yeah. not, not Patterson, not Trenton. It's Atlantic City, and that's because it is internationally known. And our presence there has, you know, I think, added to our national university status that we just received this year. That we now have much more name recognition because that's anything great. we do in Atlantic City gets covered. Absolutely. No. No, that's great. Hey, so it's clear to anybody that's listening that you've got a lot of passion for the things you're doing and the things that you've been doing for the last seven years or so as the president. Why are you leaving now? You still seem like you have so much to offer. Well, that's a great question. Well, number one, I turned 71. And, and even though that's new, I mean, what is it, 70s or new 60s and things like that? But I turned 71. It was our 50th anniversary this year. We just got a, you know, a, a perfect middle states reaccreditation. Um, we, we are, you know, fiscally very, very sound. We have, you know, a strong population, uh, uh, you know, a student. In fact, we have the largest number of applications. We have 13 or 14,000 applications this year. Um, I thought at the time, was right. I mean, we had excellent reviews from Moody's and Fish. And, you know, I think George Washington got it right. Eight years as president is about <laughs> right. And so I really do. And, and, you know, it's been a great run. And you want to leave on a high note to turn. It, it'll help us attract a great successor because it's a really jewel of a university to take over. So uh, I, I always believe the university gave me my life, quite frankly. And, you know, and as a result, I owe it to leave it on, under the best terms possible. What are you going to do next? Any ideas? Well, I'm going to be president emeritus, and um, I am a tenured professor, and I can certainly go back to teach. It's funny that you asked this. Just today, I was offered a not not a not a not a uh, what do you call full time position, but a position on on a national organization. I can't publicly announce which one that I have been. You know, I've guest lectured at and things of that nature. So, uh, you know, I. I pretty good name recognition in the state. I, I'd been chair of the New Jersey President's Council, which is all the presidents for the last two years. So uh, there'll be a lot of opportunities, and I'll be there available depending upon the, the new president at, you know, at his or her discretion. I mean, I mean, you know, total sole discretion to be available if they need me. I mean, I do know Atlantic City. Um, 50 years in the business, I know, you know virtually every legislature, and I, I, that'll try to help open the door for that new president and just stay out of that person's way. I will be... Uh, an office in Atlantic City, not in the main campus in Galloway, where I, you know, where I am as president, um, uh, because I want to, you know, I want to stay really focused in Atlantic City. I, I love it. And I love the project. Uh, and if I decide to teach, uh, I can, you know, in the doctoral program, because it is in, in, you know, organizational leadership, and that's my PhD, uh, my my doctoral degree. And I think that if that is the um, that is the case, that's what I'll do. Well, uh, that is uh, is terrific. You mentioned the Levinson Institute for Gaming, Hospitality, and Tourism. Are mm -hmm. there any other, 
unique educational opportunities that having a proximity so close to Atlantic City offers the students that maybe other colleges and universities wouldn't be able to offer their students? Oh, yeah. We've always that's, – that's a really thoughtful question, and, and it doesn't come up that frequently, so thanks. Yeah, obviously, what we've always tried to do, both in the Galloway – and I haven't even talked about that 1,600-acre campus in the middle of the Pinelands National Reserve. We're the only college that has a campus, 1,600 acres, okay, to think about that, with lake streams on the main campus, okay, in a Pinelands – in a national reserve. We have Bayfront property. Our coastal research center is in, you know, the Port Republic area, okay, in, in Bayfront and now oceanfront property. We're the only college in America that has that. So what we've always tried to do is use our natural resource. So we have always had a strong environmental sciences program. We've always had a strong marine sciences program, a strong oceanography program, a strong hospitality program. So we, uh, you know, we were the first masters of Holocaust and genocide studies in the United States. So we and we, we have a strong uh, population of survivors and, and their families. So we've tried to use, which ties into what I said at the beginning about an anchor institution, we've tried to use our natural lo- our locations and natural resources as part of our curriculum. And so we have, we have a nice footprint in those areas. For example, our coastal research center all along the New Jersey coast, all the way up from Sandy Hook down, uh, my, that coastal research mm. center has dealt with the you know sand replenishment programs and things of that nature for you know 30 40 years now well that's terrific I, i'm going to end with two quasi controversial questions but something tells me you can handle both uh we're on a, a talk station a lot of the shows on here and by extension a lot of the listenership is pretty conservative mm-hmm. and one of the things that's been uh, frustrating for a lot of conservative parents is that they feel like there is not really true free speech on a lot of college campuses there, there's a feeling that if you're a, a conservative uh, student or uh, somebody that uh, differs from where the bulk of the political orientation of the students and maybe even the faculty is at a college that you're treated a little bit differently. How do you balance uh, the needs for freedom of speech with academic and educational freedom? Is that a challenge that you faced in your leadership role? Listen, at, at, yeah, most colleges and universities in the United States, the faculty are tech, you know tend to be more liberal than the general population. There's no question about that. But our student body isn't. Our student, remember, I always tease folks. I said I'm in charge of the bluest entity in the reddest part of the bluest state. And we're in a highly, you know, re, you know what I would call conservative Republican area of New Jersey where we're located. Okay, not necessarily Atlantic City campus, but certainly the Galloway campus. So we draw a lot. Of what I would say are conservative students who we we you know we have clubs for our students who we promote uh, we promote uh, that kind of you know free speech we really do I mean we've had uh, Gorsuch on the campus the Supreme Court we had McGann uh, you know uh, Trump's uh, person who was charged in all the who who led you know really selecting all the judiciary for the United States. So I, I think that under the Trump administration, and we've never like heckled a, a speaker off, and we, we've, we've embraced, quite frankly, uh, all points of view. And as a, as a president, I, I, I'm 
very, very firm on that, that that everyone's voice needs to be heard. I, I'm committed to that principle. And, and that goes all the way back to the 70s. I'm one of those, stu- you know, I'm from the, that era, the 60s and 70s, where you, you promoted that kind of, you know, uh, you know, honest, open, candid kind of discussion. I, I worry on the bigger picture point of view, what you're talking about, I worry about the divisiveness in our country right now. Uh, and we do everything we can to, you know, uh, promote civil discourse, uh, um, even to the point where, where – and we've been acknowledged and recognized nationally for that. So uh, I get it. I do understand how parents may feel that way, and I do know that uh, at, at some of the you know, Ivy League schools that get a lot of attention on that issue, uh, it's been some uh, – you know, what I think is horrible things where people have not been allowed to voice their opinion. I don't think it happens as much on uh, state college campuses as it does at some of the uh, more elite public colleges, to be perfectly frank, frank with you. Well, and I'm Frank all the time, so I certainly appreciate your frankness. <laughs> I'm sorry, Lastly, I'm Frank. Me. <laughs> lastly, and then we'll let you get some sleep. Um, okay. You've certainly earned it. Lastly, and this might be the most controversial question I ask, I ask it to everybody that comes on in this segment. If you had to pick, gun to your head, had to pick your absolute favorite restaurant in Atlantic City, what is it? Oh, Cafe 2825, without a doubt. All right, Cafe. You know, they get their bread from Staten Island. My oh, hometown. Of course I know. Are you kidding me? He's closed on Mondays because he goes up there and gets all his food. That's good. <laughs> and, I, and let me say, but I love Knife and Fork. I love Chef Fola. I love Doc. I love them all. But if you say my favorite, I have to tell you, it's Cafe 28. Duly noted. Dr. Harvey Kesselman, uh, the outgoing president of Stockton University. Keep us posted on what you're doing next. And uh, hopefully, even if you are leaving your role as president, you won't be a stranger to this program. Okay. Well, thanks, Frank. Great talking with you. And thanks for covering Atlantic City. We need you, my friend. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Feeling my way through the darkness. They tell me I'm too young to understand They say I'm caught up in a dream Well, life will pass me by if I don't open up my eyes So that's fine by me Wake me up. Uh, I believe the artist pronounces his name Avasil. Is that right? Well, no. What do you? Uh, Matt Blaze is laughing at me. What is that? Vichel? Avisel? What is it? How do they pronounce it? That would be Avici. Avici. Avisel. So what's that L doing there? Oh, There's it's no not eye. an L. It's, it's an two I. All right. It's Avici. Well, whatever. Featuring Owl Black. Yeah. Uh, also, the, may he rest in peace. Avici yes. died. Yeah. The, uh, uh, suicide. Two or three years ago, I think. Oh, that's yeah, sad. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Uh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. playing the song is a tribute to him. Indeed. And uh, to all the people that uh, that need to uh, wake up at this time, which are more and more people these days. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade. Very much looking forward to talking with him. Get his take on the news of the day. 
By the way, uh, those of you that are holding, I'll get to you. But uh, I was going to say, you know, I was at a wedding with my wife in uh, a couple months ago. And the wedding's wrapping up. And this was one of the – my wife gets drunk two times a year, if that, if that. I get drunk probably two times a week at least. So um, this was one of the occasions where she was drinking, so I was the sober one, so I could drive. So I um, – I as the party was wrapping up, I was getting the, her car so that I could bring it around and so she wouldn't have to walk too far for the car. So I grab her pocketbook. So that, you know, it was safe. So no one would take it. So I pick up my wife at the end of the party. And she proceeds to chew my ear off saying you can't take someone's purse without letting them know. And she was right. Kate May, last week, she does the same thing with me. She takes my 77 WABC cap that I was wearing at a restaurant, doesn't tell me. So we got separated, and I spend all this time looking for this 77 WABC cap at uh, Doc Mike's Pancake House. Lo and behold, she had already taken it. And I said, honey, didn't we have a whole conversation about that? Well, you can't take stuff without, without letting me know. Same thing. So a little earlier, we're in the kitchen, and uh, I'm waiting in line to get a cup of Kavefi, and I see Kenneth in there. And uh, Kenneth is doing a great job as our telephone talent coordinator. I did tell our uh, program director, uh, Matt Meany, that the other day, by the way, and give um, everyone else who works on the same on the show the same glowing review. But certainly Kenneth got it. And uh, I, uh, you know, I leave to go to the restroom, come back. My coffee mug is missing. So I'm looking all over for it. I don't see it. I said... Should I pour myself another cup? Because I do keep a backup mug in there. Looking around. Where is it? I don't see it. I said, is it possible that Kenneth would have seen that I was in line for coffee, filled it, and come back to the studio all without letting me know? I said, no, Kenneth wouldn't do that without letting me know. He wouldn't have me sitting around here feverishly looking for a coffee mug when he knows I have to be back on the air in two minutes. He would give me a heads up. Plus, how would he know what variety of coffee that I wanted? So I don't see it. I, let me, maybe I didn't take it in here to the, in the first place. Meanwhile, I knew I took it in there. So let me look around. So I go back in the studio, and there's a, a cup of hot java Waiting for me, sure enough, I look towards Kenneth. He gives me the thumbs up as if to indicate he did go about this coffee method. But, Kenneth, without – I appreciate you getting this coffee with nobody asking you to do so. But without letting me know that you were getting this coffee, didn't you foresee that this was going to lead me to just look all over the kitchen area for this cup of coffee? So I was going to wait for you to come back, but – I gave it like a couple minutes and I was like, you know what? I'll just bring it back for him. And I asked Alex, I'm like, how does he like his coffee? And he said, just keep it black. So I just figured I'll bring it back. You'll realize that I already got it for you. Well, ultimately I did. But those were precious that. minutes that I that I lost. I didn't I don't know where you went. So I just brought it back for you and uh Well thank you. Thank yeah, you. that's about it. You could have left a note also. 
you know, I could have yelled for you. I could have went a on a journey to find you. SMS, text message. Maybe, yeah. That, that'd be nice. But All right. Well, it all worked out. I, I, I'm caffeinated, and it's all for the all for the better. 800-848-9222. Very quickly, uh, I, this is the last day that I'm going to promote the most recent edition of the Racket Report podcast that I've done with uh, Judge Gleason. And we didn't just discuss uh, – Judge Gleason was a prosecutor, a mob prosecutor. Not just mob, but other things. We did not just discuss the Gaudis. We discussed – um, the Colombo crime family and FBI agent Lindley DeVecchio, who went on trial for murder. Listen to what he said. Do I believe that Lynn DeVecchio um, crossed the line in the sense of aiding and abetting murders as he was as that withdrawn prosecution charged him? No. Do I believe he got way too close to Scarpa and that the agents in his squad, Chris Favo, Jeff Tomlinson, two others, Ray Andish, Howard Ledbetter, do, do I believe that that those special agents under Lynn's supervision properly reported to their super to Lynn's supervisors that Lynn got too close to Greg Scarpa? Absolutely. Um, so you know, it's if the line's criminality, non-criminality. I don't have any reason to believe that Lynn engaged in criminal acts. Did he lose his balance in in handling Greg Scarpa? Yes, I believe that. I mean, that's just crazy. Greg Scarpa Jr. has detailed DeVecchio's murders and a lot more. And Judge Corman found he was providing info for murders. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. By now, you've probably heard about this, uh, this interesting defamation verdict in the case of Alex Jones. If you're not familiar with Alex Jones, Alex Jones is a radio and television talk show host. He's not really heard much on terrestrial radio stations like this one. He's mostly, he's built an incredibly large following on the internet, part of the InfoWars brand. He's very big in terms of online media. And the guy has made millions, uh, probably, no one knows exactly how much he's made, but probably over $100 million. And most of his show deals with uh, conspiracy theories. But the people that have gone on his show, uh, Donald Trump went on his show when he was running for president, and uh, other people have gone on their, his show, and they say, if you want to sell a book or something like that, there's no quicker way to do it than to go on Alex Jones's show. And he's got a, an incredible following. Now, most of his show is basically either hawking supplements or explaining 
how different conspiracy theories connect to one another. Now, I find Alex Jones pretty entertaining. I, I think he's actually a very talented broadcaster. However, most of what he says is um, – now, I, I do give him credit for paying attention to some stories that are ignored by the mainstream press, and I give credit to anybody that does that. But so much of what he says is just total hogwash, total nonsense, and just uh, absurdities. It's just absurdity after absurdity. One of the most absurd things he's ever said – in a lifetime of broadcasting, and he's welcome to come on the show. I know he's got a new book out, and uh, I'm happy to have him on. And uh, I give credit to broadcasters that have had him on their shows, uh, like Joe Rogan, like Howard Stern, like Megyn Kelly, uh, because I think the worst thing that you can do for someone like Alex Jones is to pretend like they don't exist when the guy has literally millions of listeners. So clearly, Alex Jones is putting something out there that people are buying and are into. Um, and I've actually told his publisher that he, he when his book comes out, he's welcome to come on this show. I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for that, uh, but I hope not. But um, one of the most disturbing things that Alex Jones ever said was that the nation's deadliest school shooting, the, the massacre at the Sandy Hook Elementary School that took place about 10 years ago, in which 20 students were killed and six teachers were killed, is that it was a hoax. And essentially he said that this was a hoax to, I don't know, get America to adopt gun control measures. And he said that the... Children didn't really exist and that the parents of these children that were killed were actors. Now, think of how hurtful that is. Your child, first of all, I I can't even comprehend of my child being killed. I, I almost am beside myself just thinking about it. Picture your child is killed and then... A commentator with millions of viewers goes on TV or on the Internet and says that child never existed and that you're an actor. I mean, can you imagine how traumatizing that is? So that is, I think, among the most damaging lies that Alex Jones has ever put out there. That being said, I am also a free speech fundamentalist. And I thought it was reprehensible when Alex Jones was getting deplatformed from Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. And even though I might not like the things that Alex Jones says, my general attitude with speech that I don't like is I don't have to listen to it. So how does that apply to this defamation suit? Well, apparently... So Alex Jones was sued by the family members, by the parents, basically, of several of these murdered Sandy Hook children. And he last week, the judge and excuse me, the jury in this defamation trial awarded it found in favor of the plaintiff. And said that Alex Jones is going to have to pay close to $50 million, $49.6 million. 
it's probably going to be a lot less than that because Texas has some laws limiting punitive damages. So he'll probably end up spending a lot less than that. One of his companies has declared bankruptcy. But what's interesting is uh, there are many things that are interesting about this case. One is that Alex Jones showed up to court with a uh, with masking tape over his mouth saying essentially save the first, meaning the First Amendment. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument about saving the First Amendment because the First Amendment exists not to predict to protect the speech that everybody likes. The the First Amendment exists to protect speech that everybody hates, that's reprehensible. That's why um, Alan Dershowitz defended the right of white supremacists to march through Skokie, Illinois. So Jones has been portraying this lawsuit against him as an assault on the First Amendment, and the parents who sued him say his statements were so malicious and obviously false that they fall well outside the bounds of speech that is protected by the First Amendment. Now, this trial, which is where uh, in, in, it took place in Texas, which is where Alex Jones's website and his parent company are based. It stems from a lawsuit that's been going on for four years, a uh, lawsuit brought by Neil Heslin and Scarlett Lewis, whose six-year-old son was killed in the attack, along with 19 other first graders and six other teachers. Alex Jones um, took the stand on Tuesday and Wednesday, and we're going to play you some of the highlights, but um, defamation laws evolved through decades of U.S. Supreme Court rulings on what is and what isn't protected speech. Essentially, the Supreme Court has said that defamation, saying false defamatory things about someone, is not protected speech. So usually, this trial was very unusual. Because usually the first question that jurors answer at trial is whether the speech qualifies as unprotected defamation. If it does, then they address the question of damages. But this trial skipped that whole first question and I think really deprived all of us of a proper debate about what is protected speech under the First Amendment. Jones's trial skipped this whole first question and went straight to the second From the start, it focused not on whether Jones must pay damages, but how much. Apparently, and I can't figure this out, Jones seemed to sabotage his own chance to fully argue that his speech was protected by not complying with orders to hand over critical evidence such as emails. That led the judge to enter a default judgment declaring the parents winners Before the trial had even begun. Judges in other lawsuits against Jones, they issued similar rulings. Uh, Stephen Solomon is a founding editor of NYU's First Amendment Watch. This is what he said. I don't know why they didn't cooperate. It is just really peculiar. It's so odd to not even give yourself the chance to defend yourself. Uh, Barry Covert, a First Amendment lawyer in Buffalo. It is reasonable to presume that Jones and his team did not think they had a viable defense or they would have complied. So um, basically, the judge says 
that uh, when he when she was instructing the jury. I thought you're innocent until proven guilty. And the judge said, this is a special case. I say Alex Jones is guilty and you're going to say how guilty he is. So the jury never weighed in on whether or not these lies were protected speech or not. They just weighed in on the penalty. Is that all clear? Now, Scarlett Lewis, uh, who is one of the, as I mentioned, not only the plaintiff, but the mother of one of these six-year-olds that was murdered, she testified about the damaging things that Alex Jones was saying about her son and the other 19-year-olds that he, excuse me, the other 19 children that he claims were never murdered. And I'm looking at it, and I'm watching what's being said and what's going on, and it really then makes it clear what happened. How does it make you feel knowing that that was said today by this man on his radio show while Jesse's father was testifying in that same seat you're sitting in? I've had I've had a hard time finding words today. It makes me feel astounded in a bad way. It's horrific, horrific, horrific. Uh, Alex Jones himself testified, and he compared the testimony of Scarlett Lewis to the own uh, to his own ability to comment. And, and you know, before we do that, I just do want to say this on the record, as I've said it many times. I apologize to both. Uh, sustained. So, Mr. Jones, one of the instructions I just gave you is that this is not a conversation. Question and answer. So she got the monologue, but not me. I got it. And uh, apparently he was even trying to sell some of his supplements in court. Do you sell vitamins? Yes. Are your vitamins FDA certified? No, they're not. Why not? 1996 law, the FDA has no jurisdiction over any nutraceuticals, not the ones at Whole Foods, not the ones at GNC, and not ours. And ours are private labeled, top brands that are sold at Whole Foods at GNC. We have them made by... The top lab recognized in the United States, all we do is put our label on it so we know it's triple tested, the highest quality, and that's why people love it because it is the best out there. And I'll give it to Whole Foods, and I'll give it to GNC and others. They've got the same stuff. There's all sorts of crap you can buy at a gas station out there. That's not what ours is. I mean, we buy our PQQ and and CoQ10 from the Japanese. I mean, it's the best. Cost five times what synthetic PQQ and CoQ10 cost. Now, you could tell he was uh, getting a bit on the judge's nerves. So here's a little back and forth of uh, he and the judge getting into it. Were you instructed that there were some things you could not testify about? Yes. And do you remember what they were? Yes. And what were they? Just top level. I'm trying to remember that first there was a document you put out saying don't talk about free speech don't uh don't say i'm innocent uh and and, and a bunch of other stuff and then and then that got withdrawn you i believe you withdrew it i think called motion limiting okay so you don't remember no 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 i, I, no. I remember currently stop you believe everything you say is true but it isn't your beliefs do not make something true that is that is what we're doing here just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. 
It does not protect you. It is not allowed. You are under oath. That means things must actually be true when you say them. Don't talk. So, um... Ultimately, as I mentioned, they found in the against Jones uh, a forty nine point six million dollar penalty. And I really do think that it would have been an interesting case if Jones's lawyers had mounted a serious First Amendment case. But a couple of quick questions for you. One, do you think if they had mounted a proper First Amendment defense do you think this still would have been defamation? Or do you think there's a case to be made that Alex Jones had a First Amendment right to say what he said? As crazy as it was, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Also, you know, I was watching the coverage of this trial last week with the people that we were renting a house with in Cape May, and some of the people said that now that Jones has basically admitted and been exposed that he knew what he was saying was wrong, that he essentially knew that he was lying, some of the people that were watching this coverage said, oh, that's really going to undermine his credibility with his audience if he's now admitting that what he said on the air was false. Other people said that this was actually only going to cause his popularity to grow. So what do you think? Do you think this will make him more popular uh, because he's able to portray himself as a victim of free speech? Or does it make him less popular? Because folks that follow him are going to see that he knew he was lying. Where do you come down on that? 800-848-9222. Now, this was uh, Scarlett Lewis after her successful victory in court on uh, on NBC News. Other parents, I wanted to represent you well. I know that you have endured pain um, just like I have over the past 10 years. And this is a huge victory for all of you. So where do you come down on this? I, I think, look, that uh, defamation, making intentionally false comments about someone, especially someone that's not a public figure, as these parents are not, Uh, making intentionally false and damaging comments against someone, I don't think it should be um, illegal, but it certainly is something that, as the jury found in this case, could lead you to have to pay for the damage that you're doing to these folks' reputation. So I do think Jones's comments here probably did go over the line in terms of what's free speech. And I'm a free speech fundamentalist. But where do you come down? Is claiming that the largest school shooting in history, at least at that time, claiming that it didn't happen, and claiming that these children never existed and the parents are actors. Is that free speech? As reprehensible it is as it is, is that free speech protected under the First Amendment? 800-848-9222. Because I don't like saying that anything is not protected by First Amendment speech. Because eventually... <sighs> You know, the, I'm concerned about the Overton window being being opened. And there's a concern that eventually everybody that's in the media is going to say something that someone perceives as being defamatory. 
And, you know, you got to protect unpopular speech. You got to protect speech that's crazy because that's why the First Amendment exists. But does this cross a line? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin with James in Pennsylvania. Hello, James. Hello. I'm calling from a little town called Intercourse, Pennsylvania. And I was a practical nurse, and my last name's James Package. And I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. But you know what? I don't care what anybody says as long as it's not psychological warfare and brainwashing. And a lot of talk show hosts are doing that right now. But, mister, could you please help me get off the casting couch at KDK Radio? I've been there for years on it. (laughs) All right. Thank you, James. Uh, Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Jones was right. That was a hoax. Because there was a policeman that they interviewed from Florida that was retired, and he went up to investigate it, and he tried to talk to the grieving parents over there. And the grieving parents, were no, they didn't want to talk to him. They were hiding. The others claimed they all moved away, and he said he found that very, very bizarre that they did that. They're doubling the individuals that brought the suit are doubling down on the hoax to me. I I, Wait, I buy Tom, what Tom, Jones Tom, says. Tom, you don't think that these children were really murdered? I don't think they were. I think that they're just doubling down on a hoax. Well, so who are these children? Who did they bury? Uh, well, I uh, that's that's a good question. How they handled that? But in other words, but. Uh, but the situation is, to me, they may have had kids that passed on, and maybe they passed them off supposedly as their kids. And today you've got a lot of actors and actresses running around doing this kind of stuff. Right, but so if there was any truth to that, why wouldn't Jones's lawyers have offered some evidence of that instead of admitting that Jones was lying? Uh in my opinion, here's what happened. They they just they were playing on people's emotions. The mere fact what you just said before, they were playing on the emotions. The judge was playing on the emotions, and and there's they, there's just like uh, uh, they want to promote this hoax. It was a hoax from the. Head to toe. Tom, I I am blown away by this. You know, you're an intelligent guy. I can't understand how you think the murder of six adults and nine and twenty children is a hoax. I just I don't understand it. And even Alex Jones doesn't think it's a hoax. He's admitting he apologized. You heard him in the testimony. He apologized, and there's apparently text messages that he that he sent to. Let me hear clip nine if I can, uh, Matt. It, there's text messages that his lawyers inadvertently sent to the plaintiff's lawyers in which they talk a little bit about this. Did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up. They sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. Yes, I do. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. I told you I gave in my testimony the phone to the lawyers before or whatever, and, and so you got my phone, but we didn't give it to you. But you testified under oath 
previously that you personally searched your phone for the phrase Sandy Hook and there were no messages. You said that under oath. Yes. And you lied when you said it. No, I did not lie. So no journalist, no commentator is thrilled, and I'm certainly not, to venture down the sort of slippery slope that can result when subjective parties like a judge or a jury weigh in on First Amendment issues. Even if you agree that Jones defamed the parents when he said they were actors who fraudulently claimed to have murdered their children, which is not true, and even if you agree that those claims were intended to cause those parents emotional distress because Jones was feuding with them and his audience liked to hear him say that stuff, watching a lawyer make those arguments is a little uncomfortable because, and somebody wrote a good column in TexasMonthly.com about this, how long before someone who doesn't like something I've said tries to put me on trial? That being said, I'm wondering, it was Dan Solomon that wrote that article in Texas Monthly. I always like to give credit. Does do these Jones comments cross the line beyond what's protected speech? And um, I'm first of all, I'm blown away by Tom in the Bronx. I, I just blown away that he thinks that the Sandy Hook children were not really murdered. But should you have a right to say that stuff if you know that it's not true? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eric's in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, hey, oh, Frank. Hey, how you doing? Welcome back. Thanks. Um, the, they, uh, this is what they pull out on Alex. Like he's tried to avoid talking about it. Um, I, when I was at the last job I had, the guys in the warehouse, we would all talk real stuff, real, what's really going on in the world. And so I would, they asked me what I thought about the case. And I said, well, you know, we have a right question anomalies, even if it happened or didn't happen. If something's strange, why can't we ask about it? And then my friend told me all this weird stuff. Like what, what, what the hell? Like, there's a lot of weirdness for this case. I'll say that. I don't think it's going to affect Alex with his listeners because he rarely, if ever, says anything that's wrong. He's tried to avoid talking about it the last few years. And, and um, I know a lot of people do – I've heard that people call a parent and harass them. And so, you know, and this is always what they pull out. Whenever you, the subject of Alex Jones come out, comes up, oh, Sandy Hook, oh, guys, you're going to pull that out of your blank, blank against Alex, you know, so – you know, so I, it sounds like Eric. Out. It Go sounds ahead. like you think yeah. this falls within the realm of protected speech. I guess because, like again, we we have a right to question anomalies. You know, um, I don't know if you've heard of Wolf Halbig. I mean, if some somebody had yeah, well, say, Eric, but, you but, certainly but have a right. I, I question everything, you know, right? You have a right to yeah. question everything. I guess the question is, do you have a right to claim that uh, parents whose children have been murdered? are actually actors. If you knowingly say that and it's false and that hurts these people's reputations and it results in them getting harassed, does that cross the line by what's protected free speech? I don't have an answer for that. But best answer I could come up with is maybe. Um, And that's why I'm sorry that Jones did not mount a better First Amendment defense here. Two, I'm also, and I guess Eric answered the second question, which is, is this going to help or hurt Eric's uh, Alex Jones's um, uh, popularity? His view was it sounds like it's not going to hurt him. It may help him. Dave is in Point Pleasant. Hello, Dave. Yeah, Frank. A couple of things here. I don't know what he, um, what Alex Jones got held liable for exactly. 
because you can't defame dead people. It's well, legally the not parents, possible. The parents. So, the parents. The parent. Okay, well, it was the parent, but they're the legal guardian, so it'd be the same difference as if you're defaming the dead child. Uh, it's a very strange occurrence. Uh, this whole case. I didn't follow it closely. I don't. I've never even listened to a program of of Alex Jones. I'm not a fan, but um, I defend is whatever he wants to say on his show. I mean, it's free speech all the way. Um, if I was on that jury, I never would have voted in in favor of the plaintiffs. No, no way. Just because your child or person gets murdered. Does it not give you a right to collect fifty? Of course, million of course, Dave. Uh, of course, Dave. Words. Dave. Of course, I'm not saying that it does. But and just so you understand, the jury never got to the point of determining whether this was defamation or not. The judge found Jones in default. The jury was only in the position of awarding damages. Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yeah, Mark, you call me one all right, Rick, it's do whatever you have to do. Let's say hello to Mike in Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank, how are you? Great. Thanks. Great to have you back. And Thank you. You had a great, great, great vacation. So, Thank you. You know, it's just so you have to take a couple of steps back because in order for us just to even be here talking about this stuff, it's just unbelievable. And to see these shootings going on across the, the country, it's crazy. And, you know, for people to... The people to say it doesn't happen, I think that's just way outside of the realm. You know, free speech is free speech. It's pretty easy to understand it, right? But sometimes when this guy starts peeling the onion back and starts talking about the parents being actors, I, I think that's really going across the line. You know, and, and, and I think somewhere along the line, it's got to be capped out. All right, and so you think it crosses the line? This was not protected speech, and that uh, this was clearly crossing the line from uh, protected speech to defamation. I think if he would have said he didn't think it didn't happen, that's one thing. But when he starts peeling that onion back, he put himself in the position where he finds himself in court. Well, no, I, I mean clearly he found himself in court. The question is, is it protected speech? I guess I think you're saying no. Arnold in Brooklyn, hello. I agree with the previous caller. You have the protection against the government's telling you what you cannot say. But once you open your mouth, you have to go with it and defend it in court if it's defamatory. To the extent that if he had said that I don't believe that the shooting took place and I'm wondering whether these people are all part of a great conspiracy, well, I don't know about that. That's uh, speculation. But if he comes out and tells you for certain that uh, this is the way it was, and it's not, and it winds up affecting the uh, parents because he's accusing them of being actors uh, in order to perpetuate some sort of uh, conspiracy, then I think he has to uh, face the music. Thank you, Arnold. 800-848-9222. Uh, let me squeeze in one more. No, actually, we're running out of time. Hey, we're going to do – those of you that are holding, if you want to keep uh, holding, we'll get to you when we can. We're going to give away $1,000, at least try to. If you are the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, uh, you'll get to play the $1,000 minute and answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And then we'll have our weekly chat with the hardest working man in – Journalism, Brian Kilmeade. So uh, if you want to play the $1,000 Minute, be the seventh caller now to 1-800-848-9222. $1,000 Minute and Brian Kilmeade straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Apparently, this song is called Pulling Muscles from Michelle. Is that right? And, uh, I'm not familiar with it. It's not bad. Not bad. But we, have, we do have to figure out the, um, the music situation. I, I'm not clear, you know, um, how many of my picks end up getting selected. I never know how many songs to pick a day and which ones are going to make it. I, the, I, I don't have access to the um, archive of what songs we have the rights to. we got to figure it out. But uh, hopefully that does not affect the... Ability of our contestant this morning to win some money because it's time for The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. All right, let's say hello to Logan in the village. Hello, Logan. I know, and that was Squeeze UK uh, from from uh, pulling muscles from Michelle. Well, unfortunately, Logan, that is not one of the questions you're going to be asked today. So uh, tough. All right, you you know the game, right? Uh yeah. Okay, well, let's get started. What is my first name? Frank. What Sesame Street character is a tall yellow bird? Big Bird. What founding father appears on the hundred dollar bill? Uh, Benjamin Franklin. What is the most popular pizza topping in the United States? Pepperoni. What are the colors on the Russian flag? Uh, white and red. And? White, red, and that, that's it? Black? I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the, car- the colors of the Russian flag are red, white, and blue, Logan. Very patriotic colors. They must be a very patriotic country. Logan, hang on. Uh, Kenneth is going to give you a, um, a consolation prize. Give him your information. Meantime, uh, we get the opportunity to talk with the hardest working man in media, Brian Kilmeade, New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox & Friends on Fox News, nationally syndicated radio talk show host who you could hear on WABC every day at uh, 10. Uh, and last night ended up uh, filling in for, for Tucker Carlson on uh, the most watched cable news show in prime time. Brian, I say this every week. I'm in awe of your schedule. I don't know how you do it all. Well, I was off a couple of days, and then when all hell broke loose on Monday, um, I was away. I tried to do the radio, tried to get the radio show going, but then I thought, okay, let's just take an extra day. And then I'm hosting for Tucker Wednesday, Thursday. We got One Nation on Saturday, and then you know, just when you think, when they always tell us, Frank, oh, in August things get really slow, <laughs> and everything's kind of slow till Labor Day. That's on some other era, not this era. I mean, look what happened on Monday. Look what happens on da- on a daily basis. The president's press conferences, the legislation is going to be jammed down our throat tomorrow. Three hundred sixty-nine billion dollars worth of uh, new Green Deal. I mean, it's not an inflation. It's not about attacking inflation. What the president ridiculously said is zero. It is about getting us to have electric cars that we can't afford, uh, that aren't ready uh, for an electric grid that can't handle it. 
Well, and middle class Americans, they're going to be targeted by the IRS. That's what happens tomorrow. We, you and I cannot take a day off. I'll tell you, that is for sure. The, the news cycle never stops. All right, let's begin with this uh, Mar-a-Lago raid. There's been a lot of reaction to it from uh, from all quarters. And uh, a, a lot of folks are saying that uh, maybe the administration, uh, the Justice Department, the FBI may have overreached here. And this could lead to some political backlash, which could actually be pretty beneficial to President Trump. How do you see this raid? Right now, it's definitely helping him. Uh, right now. I don't know what they took and what their intent was. I talked to Eric last, Eric Trump last night, and he said, we have not seen the affidavit. We have not seen the warrant. We do not know what they took. And I did speak to him Monday night, and I was able to tweet some things out. And he said, uh, you know, they went in the safe because, Brian, there's nothing in the safe. They told us to shut off surveillance cameras. We didn't shut off surveillance cameras. We watched them for nine hours. So, uh, you know, we, we they cut off a lock. And they took what was in there. They told us to put a lock in there. We told them we had documents that we were going to keep for our records. They said, well, it's our records. They said, well, let's debate that. Now, I did not know this, but Barack Obama has got 30,000 uh, documents that it's under dispute with the National Archives. He's like, well, you know, I'm going to digitize him, give it back when my library opens. His library has not opened yet. It's been five years. So, you know, they have a whole bunch of documents. like, listen, you could take some of these back. The other ones I'd like to hold on to. So they talk as late as June. Six weeks later, they got to get in there. Newsweek's reporting that they had an informant say, go to X, Y, and Z place. That was his office, Melania's closet, this storage unit. They told him to lock it up. So they go, okay, I'll lock it up. They put a padlock on it. In come the FBI. They cut the lock. What was the point of that? I mean, what is the point? Now today in the New York Post, they report they wanted Donald Trump out of there to keep this thing low profile. Are they idiots? You're going into a former president resort residence? And you think it's going to be low profile? You wait for him to go to New Jersey and you break in there? Unbelievable. And uh, the Trump campaign, uh, or the pre-campaign, I guess, is making hay out of this. They've released a campaign-style video. They're raising money like crazy. All of the other potential presidential candidates, by and large, have lined up behind Trump in opposition to what the FBI and the DOJ has done have done here. You think this is, in some ways, the the best day for uh, Trump's pre-presidency of late? Yeah, and you know, they, you know, they say they they tried, and I, I watched the other channels too, just to get ready for Tucker to find out what that you know what they were saying. And their big push, by the way, if you're flipping channels, and I don't want you to, or listen to other stations and right. other than WABC, and I don't want you to. They wanted to. They want us to stop saying raid. Really? You want to stop? It's a raid. Stephen Colbert used the word raid. I mean, you use the word raid. Newsweek used the word raid. Politico says it's a raid. Like, listen, guys, it's not a raid. Uh, they went in there and they just grabbed out. Excuse me. They raided your house for nine hours. They burst in the door. There's nobody there. They stayed for nine hours. They told the lawyer to sit inside. Don't follow him into this room. That's a raid. Armed guards on the outside. That is a raid. Not telling the Miami Bureau that you're coming in to Palm Beach. That is insane. To me, I'm not an FBI agent. Okay, why are you so secret to the own, your own FBI agents? That's a raid. This Bruce Reinhardt, the judge that signed off on it, does not like Trump. He 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 rants against Trump as early as uh, his conflict with John Lewis years ago, and you know he comes out against Republicans. And this guy should have recused himself immediately and say, "Listen, 
he could. Uh, I shouldn't really do this because it's going to bring up a whole thing in my past. I defended Jeffrey Epstein. I defended all the people uh, involved with that. So you probably don't want me there. Instead, he signs off on it proudly. And now people are looking into him, and I'm sure he does not want this scrutiny. Well, he, yeah, he was a uh, a Jeb Bush donor as well, but uh, obviously the Jeb Bush supporters are not exactly uh, Trump fans generally. But uh, if 30 FBI agents spent nearly 10 hours scouring through your house with no apparent limitation, I'm not sure what you could call it other than uh, other than a raid, even if you're being as uh, polite as, uh, as possible. Hey, uh, one thing that came out yesterday, you have sort of been one of the early people saying that you think it's likely – that, um, you know, that Glenn Youngkin may be a presidential candidate in 2024. You think it's likely that Ron DeSantis may be a presidential candidate in 2024. Now, Axios is reporting that the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, that his political operation is making pretty significant moves towards a potential White House run. Now, this would um, test a lot of where the GOP is these days because Suarez has publicly criticized both former President Trump and Governor DeSantis, but he's considered a rising political star in the GOP, particularly because of the growing Hispanic influence within the GOP. Where do you think a Suarez candidacy would go in 2024? I'm not sure how far, but I know he's extremely talented. I did a thing on Little Havana, which is the most successful immigration movement by any group since the Pilgrims, uh, and they are just a force in Florida. And Cubans, for the most part, when they come here, they're there to work. They're industrious. They're well-educated. Uh, they love being in this country. My hope is Venezuelans will feel the same way because they lost all their rights, too. And uh, he's an extremely impressive guy. And when his main clash with DeSantis was on COVID, he thought DeSantis opened up too quick. I, I think DeSantis was right. The one thing, uh, and I do think he'd, he'd be a legitimate candidate, but I don't think he's ready for president yet. But one thing he would do, like Yunkin, he's got no hooks to Trump. He knows owes nothing to Trump. He's not against him. He's similar to him, uh, but he's not against Trump. So like Yunkin, not against Trump. They work together in this China deal, but not owed to Trump. I, I don't see DeSantis running if Trump runs unless Trump is so embroiled in litigation and uh, whether the, the courts are going to decide whether he's eligible to run, if he's indicted, or things like that. If he, it becomes so sullied and confusing, then Trump and DeSantis will go, you know, I hate to do this, but i got to run. Uh, even though he knows it's his time, but if Trump doesn't move over, uh, I don't know how he wins, because if DeSantis does emerge, Trump world will be so divided he has no shot to win the general. Mm-hmm. Where if Yunkin wins, he could run on the America First policies, be a business person, win in a purple state, and you could see him sincerely saying, hey, Trump people, I have nothing against you. I just think I'm, I'm a better guy for this right now, and I'm younger. And I've only got one term in Virginia, some weird thing. They don't let these guys and these women run twice. So he doesn't have to say, well, do your job. Well, I'm doing my job, but I'll be two years in, two, two, and then two years left. Why wouldn't I run for president? So I think Yunkin's got a big war chest, and I heard big donors are around him. Christie will run if Trump runs. I, I don't know if he has the traction yet, but I will say he's a, a great communicator with a big, rich background. I, I will see if he can reclaim some of his momentum that he had a, a few years ago. And, you know, I, I'm not sure who else gets out there. I mean, they, they talk about uh, the governor of Arkansas. I don't know. I mean, he doesn't have a – Nash, he's a nice man. 
He doesn't have a national figure, and being anti-Trump might give Hogan feeling that he could run. But look at what's got to Liz. He'll be run, get as many votes as Liz Cheney. Liz yeah. Cheney might run. But well, what's no, Liz Cheney uh, going to get? Uh, she's got a lot of money that she hasn't spent on her own reelection. So if a lot of folks are speculating about that very thing. By the way, people just tuning in. We're talking with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, you can see Brian in live in the flesh August 27th in Newark, New Jersey. Oh, I, I do have some news. Oh, let's see. Uh, we'll, we pushed that to December 2nd. Oh, uh, so I have great. my paperback coming out, and I thought it would be better. So I'm uh, being at the end of the summer. So uh, that'll be December 2nd. If you go to BrianKillMe.com, if, if you fly all the way up to Albany, I'll, I'll see you September 8th. Uh, see, but, that, that's, uh, it's good for everybody because you were competing with a Sid Rosenberg event in Brooklyn that day for his book. So now our audience can attend both. Your event I on did December not know 2nd. that. Right, well, see, that, 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 I was very divided. I was going to have to go do the Brooklyn to Newark, uh, Newark shuffle. Uh, Brian, so that's great. But people, there's more information at BrianKillmead.com. People could check that out. Brian, I don't want to get you in trouble here. This might be a little bit of a controversial question, but there's been a lot written about the um, the various Murdoch media publications and how they're covering Trump. There's speculation that uh, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, maybe even Fox might be cooling on Donald Trump. I, I know you work there, and I wouldn't be that comfortable with people asking me questions about what goes on behind the scenes here. But are you seeing that at all? Are you seeing any sort of pressure from uh, on high to be more critical of Trump than what Fox has done in the past? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, that stuff makes me laugh out loud because they don't have any sources. It sounds like they're talking to people that were fired or quit here, and they go, let me tell you about Fox. I, I watch people try to get ratings by saying, let me just tell you what really goes on at Fox. This is the most diffuse management structure we've ever seen. For example, I'm doing One Nation at 8 o'clock. It's uh, at 8 o'clock on Saturdays. Saturdays. Right. Has anyone on the second floor talked to me and my executive producers about what's in that show? No. The only thing they'll bring up uh, they'll look at my rundown and ask me certain things, and they'll say, oh, I, you know, that guy's been on four or five times. You might want to get – you might not want to use Jonathan Turley this week. You might not want to use Andy McCarthy. They've been on all over and that type of thing. But uh, I do Fox and Friends. I talk to the executive producer all day back and forth. There's been no mandate there. I just did Tucker last night. If you watch that show, please show me the anti-Trump rhetoric in that or the pro-Trump rhetoric in that. You just If anyone listening on the outside wants to know what goes on at Fox, think of it as every show is its own franchise, mm. supervised loosely. But what it takes to make it in that market, whether you're a Applebee's or not, Applebee's in Seattle might make it a bit, have a different uh, game plan than Applebee's in Brooklyn. And that's what it is. It's I'm empowering my producers, most of which started as public production assistants. They work their way up here. Most people have been here 10, 15, 20 years. You work your way up on sure merit. And then when you, you get your judgment trusted and tested, but there's no mandate ever. There's no mandate. I don't know what the New York Post is doing. I know I love having a lot of their writers on. John Levine was on yesterday. Miranda Devine's going to be on. You know, she's been leading the charge on what's going on inside Trump team. Please look at the Miranda Devine columns and tell me the anti-Trump or pro-Trump rhetoric. She's doing reporting. So uh, I, I, I laugh when people say there's these mandates. The, uh, and what I see, no one's briefed me, but the Murdoch school of thought is, Hire great people. Have them work hard. When it's up for their contract to be renewed, I'll renew them if I like what he or her are doing. And that's it. And for the most part, they give you the opportunity to work hard and do well. And and that's really the story. And I've been here since 90 – I started filling in in 96, got a contract in 97, 
no, not one contract that I take for granted. And if I walk around this building, finally there's people back. That's pretty much the same thing. It's, mm. You have an opportunity to work hard here. But do not think anyone's pulling anybody's strings. It's just not the case. I, I caught your interview with uh, Senator Tim Scott yesterday when he was on talking about his book. And uh, definitely Tim Scott is offering a much more optimistic view of America than some folks um, on both the left and the right are right now. And I'm curious, do you think that more optimistic view of how great America is rather than how much America is crummy, yeah. do you think that could be a, a, a potent message for the GOP if they were to adopt that as a party? Especially as a black man who grew up in abject poverty when his family divorced, his dad was in the military, his dad went and did his own thing, and his mom had to go live with their grandmother, and I walked the streets in these shacks that they lived in, and they went from a pretty decent life to as low income as you can imagine, and he watches his mom work hard, his grandfather and uh, grandmother work hard, and then his brother becomes a, a military officer, and Tim Scott becomes a successful businessman who transitions from local politics to national politics, and that's his that's his story. I asked him. I was walking in South Carolina, and I'm down. I know it's a famous road, and I should know it, but just picture the Broadway Main Street of of uh, New York City. And we're walking on this road, and I go, "What was it like growing up here?" And he left. He goes, "Brian, uh, black people didn't come here." And I go, "Why?" He goes, "We just didn't. No one said don't come." You know, he's he's my age, born in '64, '63. He's a little older, and and he said we just didn't think of it. We just did our own thing. But as I'm walking down the block. People going, hey, Senator, what's going on? Now, one black person was a, a white person. That I didn't even notice. They were just like yelling, happy they were to see him. And he goes, that was then. Look at the progress we made. Look at where I was. Look at where I am. What if the country can be like that? Mm. The country needs a TED Talk. You, you know, you could look it up every, every day and go, well, you know, why is this? Why that? And then you could take a step back and go, look how far we've come. Look how much better off we are. And get this. I want the next politician to say, there is glory in working hard. I don't care if you're working for the county, the city, the state, if you're an accountant, or if you're working in sanitation, or you're a cop. Work hard. Feel great about yourself at the end of the week. we got to get back to working hard. Only six out of ten of us listening right now have a job. I mean, we got to start outworking people again. It doesn't mean going to graduate school. It means getting a job, mm. jumping into it, being the best waiter, being the best manager, and, and just outworking people. That brings the tax revenue in. It gives you more opportunity. You, you go buy another house. It helps that real estate agent. And we grow. And don't be embarrassed about profits. Go at it. You know, instead, I'm hearing about IRS agents, 87,000 more, and they're doubling the number, and they're coming after you. Uh, I would not uh, – I think a politician could take this, uh, this dirty diamond, clean it up, prop it up. And and just uh, make sure the rest of the world knows we're still there. Brian, I'm not hearing that. Uh, on that note, uh, I got to run. It's always a treat talking to you every week. I appreciate you as busy as you are making time for our audience. We'll see you on Fox and Friends. We'll be listening this this morning and uh, and then see you again filling in for Tucker tonight. Yep. Uh, congratulations to all your success, Frank. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Brian. Brian Kilmeade. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. Straight ahead. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Thank you, Andy B., for this wonderful, wonderful rendition of The Other Side of Midnight. Time now for you to be heard for 15 seconds. Anything you want to comment on, now's the time. 800-848-9222. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike is in New Jersey. Good morning, Good morning Frank. I see Dr. Vax, Vax and Mask Fauci throughout the first pitch at the Yankee Mariner game the other night. I'm sure glad he didn't get hit with a line drive up the middle. Joe and Ron Konkama. Hey, Frank, another great show. A happy belated birthday to Frankie from Glendale, from Yagumba and Ron Konkama. Tom in Orange County. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, just uh, wanted to say the only thing Biden is going to be running for in 2024 is a fast change of diapers. Vinny in Massapequa. Yeah, Frank, I don't believe Brian. You should have followed up and asked him, is it every single show that has chosen not to have Trump on for months? Russ in White Plains. I was taught not to objectify women by focusing on secondary sexual characteristics. Women are more than the sum of their parts. It defames me as a man to say someone who mutilates themselves and takes chemicals is a man. Frank Morano, good day.